Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome once more to a brand new year of The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-John Lithgow podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. Happy New Year, everyone! Uh, so this week we have watched a movie that Lawson's been quite excited for us to get to. We have watched Peter Jackson's King Kong. Mm-hmm. But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, you've got a lot to cover, so why don't you start Oh, off? I have a lot to cover. But why don't we actually start off with a movie that I know that we all saw yeah. during our, our downtime. And let's just right off the bat here be super careful about how we discuss this, because <laughs> I know that it's... <laughs> It's a, a, a movie that people are particularly militant about spoilers for. We are, of course, referring to Spider-Man No Way Home, which is a superhero movie directed by John Watts. It's based on the, the character created by Stanley and Steve Ditko. And basically here we've got Peter Parker, Spider-Man, played by Tom Holland. He's been unmasked as Spider-Man after the events of the last Spider-Man movie. And so he approaches Doctor Strange, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, to do some sort of magic spell to make everyone forget he's Spider-Man. But the spell goes wrong, and instead, uh, a whole bunch of people who know that he's Spider-Man from all of the different dimensions get pulled in. All of them, you know, villains. We get a whole bunch of people from the Maguire franchise, from the Garfield franchise. Uh, We get Doc Ock and Green Goblin and Electro, all of these people from the previous two iterations of Spider-Man coming in, and and Spider-Man's going to find them all and find a way to send them back home. Why don't we just sort of give our brief off-the-top thoughts on this? What do you guys think of it? I loved it. This is a real celebration of Spider-Man, not only as to how he exists in the broader MCU, but how he exists on film. There's a lot of... Like you said, a lot of the villains are back. Risa Fons as Lizard, Thomas Hayden Church as Sandman, Alfred Molina as Doc Ock. Doc Ock was a real standout for me, much like he was in Spider-Man 2. He's just wonderful, and Willem Dafoe back as Green Goblin just feels right. Yeah, Green Goblin takes it up a notch. He really does. Melina and Dafoe slide back into character so easily. Yeah. And that just goes to show how wonderful actors they actually are. Risa Fons as the Lizard has always been a character I've enjoyed, so it's really good to hear his voice coming out of that terrible, terrible dinosaur again. And Thomas Hayden Church just is nice as Sandman. I've always liked him as Sandman. Even though he's not given much. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. I'm a massive Doctor Strange fan, so I love how often he's showing up in things. And it's not like it's the Spider-Man Doctor Strange show. It is very much a Spider-Man movie with Doctor Strange coming in for a bit of it. The... Last, oh god, what would you say, hour of the movie is definitely the spoiler-heavy section where we can't really talk about it very much. Uh, Suffice to say, there are some really brilliant moments that really hit hard in that movie. I love the music to this as well. They add a lot of choirs here. A lot of the leitmotifs from previous Spider-Man movies come back like Doc Ock's theme and Green Goblin's theme come back the tiniest little snippet of Electro's theme from Amazing Spider-Man 2 is there which is really good and 
the growth of the Spider-Man theme, Michael Giacchino's Spider-Man theme, has just been a joy to watch over the course of the three films. Because he's done this thing where, in Spider-Man Homecoming, it's very youthful and sort of down-to-earth. And as the movies progress, it becomes more mature and epic in scale. And I think that's really awesome. It's almost the growth from high school concert band to, you know, giant London symphony orchestra kind of thing. I think it's really great. I thought this was absolutely outstanding. It's the only thing really at this point that's challenging uh, Shadow in the Cloud for my number one of the year. Oh, really? Wow. Yes, it, it is one of my favourite movies of the MCU. It, I love that it's it's darker oh, yeah. than the other Spider-Man is, movies 100%. have been, but it, it still has that sort of playful nature to it. They've balanced the tone really well. Oh, exceptional. And even though it has, you know, all of these villains from the previous franchises, all of these callbacks, it isn't just fan service. This is a really important story for the Holland Spider-Man, and it is making choices that will change that character forever. Yeah. And yeah. Th- there, there was one old East, there was one Easter egg that was like really clunkily put in, but. I can't help but have it any other way. I love that moment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I really love the multiverse as a concept. I love that it yeah. seems like we're going there. Like, that seems to be the direction that the MCU is heading in. They're, they're heading out into the cosmos with stuff like Eternals, and they're heading, you know, out sideways into the multiverse as well. Like, these are the two directions that the MCU is expanding in, and I think that there's just so much promise there. And it's it's only going to go further in in something like Quantum Mania, the new Ant-Man movie, because they're introducing Kang the Conqueror hmm. and Multiverse of Madness as well. I think that the movie probably does have one villain too many. I think that, you know, there are just a few too many there and you inevitably get people like Lizard and Sandman who are sort of knocked to the side in favour of the, the heavy hitters. I like the way that this explores Spider-Man as sort of this iconic figure and what it means to be Spider-Man and, you know, that that Spider-Man is disturbed when he discovers that these villains that he's encountering all died in their original timelines yeah. because of their encounters with with spider-man and goblin gets himself on his glider orc redeems himself and hmm. takes out his own machine electro becomes supercharged and explodes yeah. the only two that haven't died are sandman and lizard i can imagine their conditions have grown much much worse, worse yeah. over time it's it's really exploring the themes of the Spider-Man mythos, you know, all of it, yeah. the comics, movies, all of it. It's sort of like like reaching right down into the core of what makes Spider-Man Spider-Man and, and exploring that in a way that is really epic in scope. One touch I quite liked is J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson here. The way they use him is sort of a sounding board for Peter's doubts and fears mm. and... That's ripped straight out of the OG Stanley. They're run. so yeah. clearly like trying to set compare him to people like Ben Shapiro. Yeah. Right. And Alan Jones. The the Daily the Daily Bugle, the Daily what is it, the Daily Caller? Mm. Or the Daily Wire? The Daily Wire, I think. Yeah. Then yeah. there's the, the Daily Bugle health supplements thing. 
That was yeah. hilarious. That was excellent. I laughed right we were, out loud. We were the that. only people... I think we were the only... Harley and I were the only people in our cinema to laugh at that joke in particular. Oh. Because we knew exactly what they were getting My at. cinema experience on this one was great. Mm. Uh, we, we were at like a 10 o'clock showing. Yeah. Not too many, you know, families with young kids, like, telling each other about, like, explaining the movie audience was nice and receptive to what the movie was putting down which was yeah. great especially in some of the moments that come later on i'm not so much of one for cheering in a movie but some particular moments later on had people whooping and hollering and it, it's completely earned everything that they do in this movie how they shift tones the fight scenes are brutal it, it it's, it's a way that i've i don't think i've seen spider-man fight in a while and the way that the film is filmed it is taking these cues from mark webb's spider-man movies and sam raimi's spider-man movies and it's just a love letter to the whole thing mm. john watts has done brilliantly with all three of these movies i think i could i think i would say that it's my favorite spider-man movie like full stop of any of them sure not just this iteration but the garfield and Maguire iterations as well i i still have to put spider-man 2 there but i agree this is definitely like second yeah on the because, list because with this one they they do the things they take it places and they take it places yeah. it's bold and i'm really excited for what john watts will do with the fantastic four mm. because you know he's attached to direct that project. Really? Yeah. So I'm I'm Didn't quite excited to see if the four interact with his version of Spider-Man. I would love if they do bombastic Bagman in a in like a small part. Peter goes to visit the four and then loses his outfit and has to be the bombastic Bagman. But like the way this sets up the future of the MCU is very very bold. And I didn't think they'd actually do it. There was it. a moment in this movie where it is the first time I've seen the MCU's Peter Parker as an adult. The first time I've looked at him and been like, he's matured into a man. Mm-hmm. He's not just like a kid. He's anymore. not Iron Boy Jr. He's not Iron Boy Jr. He is Spider-Man. Now. Uh, Tom Holland is like a proper movie star at this point. Oh, like. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. His performance here is great. I've, I've, I'm still... Even though, even though this is the case, I'm looking at the trailers for Uncharted and I'm like, he's basically just playing Peter Parker again. Uh, the person I've got a problem with in the Uncharted trailers is Mark Wahlberg. Who thought that casting Mark Wahlberg as Sully was a good idea? <sighs> <sighs> Stephen Lang is right there. Exactly. <laughs> like, you could get Nathan um, Fillion. No, it doesn't suit for Nathan Fillion too. It's, it's a particular sort of, like, you know, amiable father figure sort of burly father figure kind of thing that um yeah i don't don't, horrible horrible decision but anyway did you see the most recent trailer with him walking in with a mustache yeah that was (laughs) oh that must have been a kick to the net (laughs) i have a thicker mustache than mark Wahlberg does in that trailer (laughs) but um it's a really pathetic caterpillar on his face but yeah tom holland's challenge going forward will be that he will he's one of those guys that's going to look like he's a teenager until he's 50 yeah sure yeah maybe maybe he needs to grow a mustache (laughs) or i've seen him with facial hair in like bits of cherry and man it feels off 
It's like really See, off. See, I gotta Google that now. I wanna know what that looks like. Me too. Like, he has a little bit of stubble in Devil all the time, which works a lot better. Um, I still need to get around to watching that. I don't know. I I can see. I think it works fine. Just what I'm seeing here. In movement, it definitely mm. ages him up a bit. Mm. But it feels yeah. weird. Anyways, moving on. I also saw in the cinemas a whole bunch of other movies uh, since we did our last episode. I saw King Richard. Uh, I actually got the opportunity to go to a press screening for King Richard. Oh! So, this isn't actually out in Australia until mid-January, even though it's out in pretty much everywhere else. But this is a biographical drama directed by Reynaldo Marcus Green. It's the true story of Venus and Serena Williams, played here by Sunia Sidney and, and Demi Singleton, and their upbringing, their sort of becoming tennis champions, their training and everything, uh, under the coaching of their father, Richard, played by Will Smith. This is really about characters. It's not about tennis, per se. You don't need to know anything about tennis to go into this movie. I don't. You know, I know that, that you hit the, the ball with the rackets and you try to get it to go over the net and have it land within the white lines. I know but that I, th- I know that late stage tennis games can be really really frustrating. I know that people make funny noises when they hit the ball. I know that ball boys and girls get smacked with balls far too often. But it really is about the characters and their relationships with each other, and really is centered around this central figure of, of Richard. He's an interesting character. He's prickly, but he's loving as well. Like he's very overbearing as a parent, but he also really cares about his daughters. The movie is a little unsure of his ego though i would argue it's not quite sure how far it wants to go in positing that he's really doing this for his own satisfaction uh there's sort of a hint of that that maybe he's not doing this because he really thinks that it's for his girl's benefit but he might be doing this because you know it's it's putting him center stage as well and Mm. the movie never quite knows what to do with that idea uh, except raise it in the first place. But much is made of the the focus of the film in the media, I've noticed, that there's a conversation that has been broached about the idea of, you know, having these women sort of be supporting characters in the story of their own rise, that it really is around their father and, and all of that. I I think that that's a fairly toothless criticism of the movie considering that Venus and Serena Williams are co-producing the thing and that you know it is a really interesting story and that any portrayal of this story would need the Richard character to be pretty front and center given how heavily involved he was. I, I am much more sympathetic to the criticisms that it's pulling its punches in a few ways. Most of the time it doesn't and I will give it credit for that, that it never, it doesn't try and soften Richard. He is allowed to be prickly. He is allowed to be sharp and overbearing. But they do pull a few punches. There is, there is a single line in the movie that references the fact that he had a wife previously and a family previously and he abandoned them. There is a single line there, perhaps because to acknowledge it any, any further than that would like really undercut the film's central thesis that he's fiercely protective of his children, that he would abandon these other ones. Yeah, there are a few things there that kind of make me wonder, uh, you know, it's, it's, I always get a little iffy when 
people with a personal stake in the game are involved in the production of one of these things. Yeah. But the the script is excellent. I mean, the whole story takes place against this backdrop of of race that the uh, Williams sisters are sort of entering into this very like lily white sort of sport that's populated by a lot of like rich people and well-off people and here are these fairly poor black sisters that are working their way up and and really not being accepted by their fellow competitors and you get some outstanding performances as well i mean they're already ready to hand will smith and oscar from the looks of it for me the real standout here was ingenue ellis who plays his wife and she is just fantastic she like is a is a powerhouse. Uh, she is the center of what I think is the film's best scene, where basically she 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 tells him what she thinks of him. <laughs> but you also get some really good supporting performances by people like Tony Goldwyn as well. So so that's fun. And the tennis sequences when they're in play, they have a really good energy to them and it, they flow really well. But it has no business being as long as it is. It, it's two and a half hours long, and it just no no. Cut it, it, you know, 110 minutes, 120 minutes max. You know, that's the part that you should be shooting for with this. Anyways, I also saw The Lost Daughter, which is a Netflix movie. It's a drama directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal. It came to a cinema near me, so I went and saw it because I want to encourage Netflix movies continuing to come to cinemas near me. It's based on the novel of the same name by Elena Ferrante, and it follows the character of Lida, played by Olivia Colman. She's sort of this middle-aged woman. She's gone on a vacation by herself uh, without her daughter's and she notices, you know, this other family that's vacationing, particularly uh, a woman played by Dakota Johnson and her very young daughter, and sort of brings to mind old pains and old problems that she thought she dealt with but hadn't really. It's an interesting character piece. It really is all about Lita and really about people who... Parents who really don't like being parents, you know, parents who love their children but are just like exhausted by them and yeah. you know if they if they really knew that this was how it's going it was going to be probably wouldn't have made the same decisions that they did um which is interesting you don't really see that no. at all in in fiction and i think it's good that we see it here because like some parents might not be of that mindset the the whole time hmm. but there are obviously going to be parts where regrets creep in yeah. and you think about how your life could have been if you made other choices i i think that sort of thing is worth mature discussion and you know people are complex oh yeah there's you know you you see like the the whole thing is cut through with flashbacks to a young olivia coleman played by uh jesse buckley and her relationship with her daughters when they were very young and let me just tell you like jesse buckley is like perfect casting young Olivia Coleman, like fantastic casting. But it's all of this stuff, like the kids running around and she never gets a moment's peace and they're like jumping up and down, mummy this, mummy that, you know, and all this noise, all this chaos, and I'm like, yep, never having children, never having children. <laughs> I do not have the bandwidth for it. But the the present day stuff with Olivia Coleman, I mean, there is this sort of hint of something sort of mildly unstable going on inside of Olivia Coleman's head that maybe Lena has a, an illness, you know, that's sort of very vaguely mentioned that there might be some sort of hereditary thing that's been passed down to her by her mother, which again sort of plays into this this story of, of dysfunctional parent-child relationships. But 
I mean, Olivia Coleman is the reason to see this movie. She is fantastic. She is the core of it. She is the sun that it orbits around. Uh, and I just love the journey of Olivia Coleman. I love that 10 years ago, she was doing, you know, guest parts on British TV and like appearing in Doctor Who for 10 minutes towards the end of an episode. And now she's won an Oscar. She's been nominated for another. And everyone seems to expect that she will be nominated again for this. And she's like one of the leading character actresses of her generation. Yeah. And I think that's just a, a great story. And I will, I will always get a kick out of seeing her pop up in things because she is fantastic. She's a powerhouse. She's yeah. so formidable. But yeah, it's packed with a lot of symbolism and meaning. It's very dense in terms of its its construction. I mean, like I said, this is directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, the actress. This is her first film as a director and uh and she's done a really good job here i I think that there's a lot going on under the surface there's a lot of layers to it and it's one that can hold up to being really studied uh in terms of not only its narrative but in terms of of how she's putting things within the frame and how she's connecting ideas visually it's it's an interesting movie it's maybe not you know, my kind of cup of tea exactly, but it, it's a good film. I saw Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City, which I cannot exactly say the same of. Um, it's a zombie movie directed by Johannes Roberts. It's based on Resident Evil 1 and 2, the video games by Capcom. It, it's basically those two games smushed to get together. Yeah. You have all the stuff in the mansion from 1 and all of the stuff in the town of Raccoon City from 2, and they, they sort of take place simultaneously, and so that the movie has smushed them together. I mean, the heavy hitters are all here, all of the characters from the games. You've got Claire Redfield, played by Kaya. Scolidario, Jill Valentine, played by Hannah John Kamen, Chris Redfield, played by Robbie Amell, Leon Kennedy, played by Avon Yogia, and Albert Wesker, played by Tom Hopper. And uh, I will say that the best stuff is really all the setup. You know, you're really seeing this plague fall over Raccoon City and the people living there really starting to figure out that something's going terribly wrong. That stuff's all the, all the most interesting. But then at a certain point, it... it makes a split. It makes the split between the mansion stuff and the city stuff. And at that point, it starts to get a little unfocused. The narrative, I mean, the narrative matches the games loosely, but it does match the games. Uh, this is a probably a closer adaptation of, of the games yeah. than, than most video game movies. And I... Than most Resident Evil movies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But like I said, there's just a scattershot focus here. It can't hold on to all of the different threads. It skips around a lot. The characters just aren't well handled. They'll set up... It's like they did, like, the first 20% of a character arc, then they lost interest and didn't bother to follow through with it. Do do you think it would have been better if they just focused on Resident Evil 2 and just did that? I think that, yes, just pick one game and and go with it. As it is, I think, yeah, it, it doesn't explain enough either. It doesn't really ground you in all of the Umbrella Corporation stuff and all the virus stuff, and, you know, there's all these you know, hints of character backstories and relationships between each other and the experiments that Umbrella's doing. And it's, I mean, I followed along with it because I've played yeah. a lot of the games. I couldn't help but feel like you'd be pretty barely holding on if you didn't have that context. Yeah. It is more artful than the previous <laughs> ones. Oh, yes, simply by virtue of not being directed by Paul W.S. Yeah, Anderson. It's, it's not a big chasm to <laughs> breach. He, he remains a producer on this, which is distressing. Yeah, it is definitely... I would say this is the best Resident Evil, live-action Resident Evil movie. Yeah, 
<laughs> and it does have a few successful yep. moments, particularly when it's got some... It has that sort of hoary old trope of playing the the cheerful, upbeat music during a moment of, of horror and violence, which I'm a sucker for. Yeah. Uh, and it does that pretty well. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a very good, very well-staged moment featuring a lot of gunfire set to Any Way You Want It by Journey. Hmm. Which is is done well, and there's a few other moments like that that I think work. Is the film particularly cheesy? Only really in in so much as it shoehorns in a lot of strange, you know, niche references to the games, like like Jill Sandwich. Jill Sandwich. There is a line there, not in the same context as the game. It's no. but like it's so forced in into the sort of casual banter between Jill and her friends that it becomes odd there's a there's a it would make more sense in its original yeah, iteration. there's an itchy tasty reference <laughs> there's neil mcdonough prancing around as this very ineffective version of of uh dr birkin does mcdonough do his crazy eye thing? yeah yeah he gets the opportunity to do that but it's like two two 180 a pivot mm. like that's the thing is they haven't done the legwork here they're, they're trying to force too much into this one thing anyways like i said it would have been better to pick one game and uh they they do sort of leave on a post-credits scene setting up a sequel and i'm not at all yeah. sure that will get it <laughs> apparently they really want to do res 4 yeah like that frankly they probably should have just done that with this but you know that because i think robbie amell has said that he really wants to do the punching the boulder thing yeah that's res 5 though Mm. yeah sure yeah you could get like a really good sort of guillermo del toro directing an adaptation of resident evil 4 is like the best timeline that's the timeline we're never gonna see because we live Mm. in this one isn't that basically village no resident evil 4 is not village no Gilmero del Toro doing a no. Resident Evil. That's basically no, no, no. Village. It's Yeah, there's like a real sort of gothic, Lovecraftian, medieval European vibe. Fairy tale kind of vibe, yeah. But uh, I next saw Don't Look Up. It is a vicious satire directed by Adam McKay, who is fast becoming a favourite of mine in terms of writer-directors. It's an, another Netflix movie that came to a cinema near me. It follows Dr. Randall Mindy, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and his PhD student Kate Dibiaski, played by Jennifer Lawrence. They discover that a comet is headed towards Earth, an asteroid, rather, and that it will hit the planet in six months and kill everyone. It's bigger than the meteor that wiped out the dinosaurs. And they alert everyone, and instead of taking it seriously, the politicians and the media instead turn it into, like, a weird culture war thing. Sounds about right. <laughs> so this is clearly about climate change. It's clearly about climate change, this catastrophic thing that we know is coming, but no one will do anything about it because it's too inconvenient in the short term. An inconvenient truth, you might say. Yeah, it was always about climate change. But now it is also kind of accidentally about COVID. <laughs> Because of some of the parallels between um, between what we've seen in the last couple of years and what's going on here. You've got this, like, all of these conspiracy theorists who think that the asteroid isn't even real. You've got this very Trump-like president, played by Meryl Streep, who is just sort of bouncing from one scandal to another and is totally uninterested in acknowledging anything that might make her look bad. <laughs> 
there's just some some things that you know the attacking of scientists you know all of that stuff has is really present here in a way that brings to mind covid in addition to to the global warming thing it's brutal satire it's all about inaction and denialism it's it's not outright funny like it's not a haha laugh out loud thing there are a few little moments there but most of the time it is grimly amusing. And let me tell you the emphasis on the term grim, because this is, this does not pull punches. This is quite depressing if you're looking at it from the terms of climate change. <laughs> but it's packed full of just a great cast. I already mentioned DiCaprio, Lawrence and Street, but you've also got Timothy Chalamet, Kate Blanchett, Rob Morgan, Mark Rylance as this Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, Tim Cook Amalgam, who he's just giving a really good performance here. From the second he walked on screen, I knew that McKay should have cut Jonah Hill's character. He is playing Jonah Hill, and it just it interrupts the otherwise very clever, very cutting satire of the thing with this stupid frat boy, frat, frat boy crap. And uh, I wanted it gone a second the second it appeared. But if there is a a real weakness in the narrative here. It is that McKay has too many targets, you know? I just hear, like, just all of the the people that he's turning his eye on, politicians, the media, science deniers, you know, celebrities that make a big deal out of, you know, social causes but then do really nothing in support of it, celebrities that make a really big deal out of not supporting social causes and being apolitical and, you know, being shitty that way, apathetic citizens, big business, scientists who start towing the party line because their life is made more comfortable for them if they do, social media. And then there are subsections in there. I mean, there's the Trump allegory. There's the Trump allegory. There's the Fox News proxy played by Michael Chiklis playing this sort of Fox News-like host where, you know, at the very end as the asteroid gets closer and closer and closer, all of the news stations are reporting to it and then it just cuts away to this Fox News proxy that's covering some totally insubstantial thing pretending that it's not an issue because it makes their side look bad it's too broad it's too too wide an array of of people that adam mckay's got a bone to pick with so it's basically an the airing of mckay's shit list yeah it needed if he wanted to do it this wide he needed to do it as a mini series yeah if he wanted to keep doing it as a movie he needed to to focus it down a lot more onto onto a particular sphere, probably the political and the scientific sphere. But uh, it is darkly compelling, even though it does miss some of its shots because its eyes are a bit too big for its stomach. But it has a, a fantastic ending. The last 15 minutes or so are some of the best of a movie I've seen this year. Um, it has some of the most memorable moments of a movie I've seen this year. It's a really strong, strong movie. And I know that it... McKay's movies always get this. Like, The Big Short, everyone sort of grudgingly let him across into the club with that. But, you know, Vice and this have both gotten really divisive uh, reactions because, and there seems to be this, like, weird vein of criticism of, like, oh, but who is this talking to? Because it's saying stuff that I already agree with, and so what's the point of it? And I'm like, the point of it is to satirise things. You think that people, you think that, you know... Big fans of nuclear war were going to see Doctor Strangelove. I mean, what do you think the purpose of satire is? It's 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 not 
it's not meant to be some sort of convincing thing where you go in and you show it to climate change deniers and they're going to change their whole tune. That's never what satire is. It's meant to help you double down on what you believe in and point you towards proper action. Yeah, explore all of the different ideas related to the subject and widen up the conversation a little bit through humour and absurdity. It's also meant to sort of give you a chance to work through a lot of those feelings using the film Mm. like this is as absurd as the situation can get aren't you you can apply some of the stuff you've learned here tonight to your circumstance which is less ridiculous you should you guys should definitely see this movie it's on netflix now lastly in terms of cinema releases i saw dear evan hansen it is a teen musical directed by steve chabowski and it is based on the stage musical of the same name by steven levinson benj pasek and justin paul follows a seven don't you mean teen in quotation marks it follows a 17 year old high school kid named evan hansen he's played by ben platt and he writes these letters to himself on the advice of his therapist and one falls into the hands of Connor played by Colton Ryan he's this you know troubled kid at Evans school who happens to take his own life while in possession of that note and because it says dear Evan Hansen his parents played by Amy Adams and Danny Pino they think that it's a letter to Evan and they think that he was their son's friend and they think that his last words were like meant for Evan and Evan sort of gets sucked into this lie because he's sort of too socially awkward to get out of it. And he also has a big crush on Connor's sister Zoe, played by Caitlin Deaver, which complicates things. And also a great deal of self-worth issues. So the, like, yeah. the attention, he gets spiralled into this swirling vortex of bad choices. (laughs) Bad choices and bullshit. This is well-meaning if slightly bumbling. Yeah. The plot gets some criticism, and I get it, but I disagree. I also think that some of the criticism is overblown. There's some people who are like, you know, in any other movie, this character would be the the villain, the, the antagonist. I'm like, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the point. I mean, this is just this really awkward kid who's making a lot of bad decisions and is getting caught up in this sort of emotional maelstrom as as a result. Were you guys all watching the same movie that I was? Because I think it's pretty clear here. Yeah, it's pretty clear that like he's meant to be seen as someone who's making a lot of mistakes. I think the thing that I bristle against for this narrative is just how awkward it is. And the movie handles it pretty well. There are a few like really difficult moments, but for the most part, I I got through it. I love the music. Yeah, the music is is absolutely fantastic. There's good staging of those musical numbers as well. There's a few really good standout ones. Ben Platt has a has a fantastic voice. But yeah, I think that there's there's sort of this irritating tendency to turn your guns on anything that doesn't match up entirely to what you're what your view of how a narrative should go is, you know, that it's all very black and white in some people's eyes, that things need to be very clear cut, that, you know, a bad choice means a bad character. And that's not what this movie is. It's not what this play is. And I think that, you know, God help us if we ever get to the point where we have to dumb down fiction that much to satisfy people who can't deal with a fundamentally decent person making a series of really bad choices and that's the thing he's making choices out of fear 
And if you... Fear, selfishness, loneliness. Because I'm quite familiar with a lot of the music from the show. But it's like, it's not like you get to the ending of the of the story and like, oh, he's got everything he's ever wanted and everything no. is coming up Evan Hansen. He's, he doesn't end in a great place. He just comes to a to a greater understanding of himself and, you know, the world that he... And, and his place in the world. Like, that's how it ends. But because his life is not detonated and, you know, the rubble put in a cannon and shot into space, because we don't go to that burned earth extreme, there are some people out there who still bang on and on and about this being an endorsement of horrible, horrible behaviour and blah, blah, blah. I'm just like, you must be really fun to watch movies with. What I think about the ending is that he's not coming away clean from any of this, emotionally speaking. No. That is what the consequence is. Living with this. Living with what... Living with the decision that has to be made for the benefit of others. Yeah. Which is not, um, not enough for some people. It's a you know, They want to see him... They want to see him put in the stocks and pelted with rotten fruit. And because we don't go to that extreme, because his life is not destroyed entirely, it is somehow an endorsement of all of his behavior when I... He's definitely going to have a lot of people go up to him and be like, hey, are you that guy from that video where you just all of a sudden started singing for no reason? <laughs> I love a lot of the songs here. Waving Through a Window is fantastic. Mm -hmm. You Will Be Found is just outstanding. Uh, yeah. And something that... I think a lot of people actually need to hear, especially now. And the cast is really good. I mean, Julianne Moore is great. Uh, Danny Pino is great. Caitlin Diva is fantastic. I'm not the biggest Amy Adams fan, but she's good here. I think that it shouldn't have been Ben Platt. Yeah, himself. let's let's get to that. Because um, <laughs> Ben Platt... Look, look, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Ben Platt, I understand why they kept him. It's a, it's a fantastic yeah. performance. He does it really well. He's far, far too old to be playing this 17-year-old. Like, he is older than I am, and... I think it's the hair for me. Oh, it's the if hair. If he had a different haircut, but like, it would work. Because he is is fully a, more than a decade older than his character, he has obvious stubble. Like, and it's like, it doesn't matter how closely you shave down. To yeah. Just the right bit of lighting, you can still see the shadow, especially when you have dark hair like he does. Yeah. And there are just these sort of moments where, I mean, he, he is so his face, his body, he is so clearly an older person, and then you get the stubble every now and again, and it just adds a kind of unintentional comedy to it, yeah. that everyone's treating him like this 17-year-old, and he's it's you can sort of imagine the version of it as sort of this orphan-like horror story of this... <laughs> This grown man, like, integrating himself with this grieving family. For me, it's on stage he can still do the performance. Because you're not, you're not seeing all those close-up physical details. And the fact he's done it so often on stage means that he is stuck in the way of performing it on stage. And a lot of the decisions he'll make in that regard won't translate to film particularly well. Like, he's very big with a lot of the anxiety stuff, because that's how he performed it on stage. But on on the screen, it just translates translates differently. I think getting someone more comfortable for screen, or visually younger, and perhaps literally also, would have just made it work a lot better, I think. He is, he is a fantastic performer. I really hope he continues to do some movie musicals. Uh, he's he's got the presence for it. He's got the voice for it. But he just 
You know, the only, the only business Ben Platt has in a high school is as a teacher or if he's going undercover with Johnny Depp to bust a drug ring. Yeah. But yeah, I feel a bit defensive of this movie because I think that it's had all of the internet's ire drawn to it for not the greatest of reasons. The Ben Platt casting, which is suspect, but is a great performance. And then all of the, the stuff, criticisms of the plot that, you know, I just... They caught one of my favourite songs, which shits me. I just get so exhausted whenever I hear someone s- say the words, plot is problematic. And then I'm like, oh God. Because like nine times out of ten, it's it's only problematic because you've either ignored narrative complexity or it hasn't 100% matched your perfect worldview of... you know, It hasn't matched all of your opinions exactly. And I just... I'm... I getting I'm getting increasingly exhausted by this kind of online discourse. One of my favorite movies set around a high school which is also incredibly problematic with its characters is Heathers. And I love that movie. Oh yeah. Like everyone loves Heathers, but if that was made now, everyone would hate Heathers. Oh, the the remake series that was trash. <laughs> the, well, the remake series was bad just yeah. generally. So, Heathers you know. is great. Anyways, at home, I still have quite a few left. I saw Venom. Not that one, but instead the supernatural slasher movie directed by Jim Gillespie, who directed I Know What You Did Last Summer. It's it's based on a video game called Backwater that never came out. <laughs> well, that's a great sign. Yeah. Jesus. Oh my god. This outcast trucker named Ray Sawyer, he's played by Rick Kramer, he is killed by magic voodoo snakes. And... Sick. That reanimates him as an evil snake man who then pursues unfortunate teens. Uh, incredibly, I chose to rewatch this. I had already seen this and decided to watch it again for the list. It's goofy and messy, but it is kind of fun. It's sort of a bit of a melding of Nightmare on Elm Street and the Friday the 13th series. It's very much the last gasp for the Dimension Films slasher. You know, this comes out in 2005, just as that really, you know, the dregs of it are just becoming DOA at the box office. And the voodoo here is predictably less than tactful. Uh, <laughs> you think? But the, the real problem is that the villain is not very compelling. He's Freddy Krueger without the personality and Michael Myers without the physical plausibility. He's a snake boy. Yeah. The script appears to delight in, like, killing off... All of its characters before their character arcs are completed. Like like I said with Resident Evil, like they get 20% in and forget about it. Well, here it's like they get like 30 to 40% into the character arc and then they just kill them off to avoid having to like finish it. Hmm. It's it, it just happens over and over and over again with no resolution whatsoever to the point where I was like, I mean, is this, a, is this like a joke? Is this like a running gag? I mean, two or three times, that is a really interesting choice but if that's happening with everyone then that's kind of iffy it just drags on it it doesn't really have enough ideas to sustain itself but it does have a pretty cool set piece involving the destruction of a house that is actually quite fun and it makes excellent use of these sort of swamp locations louisiana swamp areas provide some real atmosphere and it's uh, really it's the best thing it's got going for it but i can't recommend it not really i can however recommend good night and good luck it's a historical drama directed by george clooney there is a period at the end of good night and good luck as if at the end of a sentence that is not a mistake if you see that in the episode description i don't know why maybe maybe uh george clooney was taking a page out of the emma director's book and 
putting the period there because it's a period piece. But this details the true war of words between Senator Joseph McCarthy and veteran TV journalist uh, Edward R. Morrow, who's played by David Strathairn, as Morrow takes on the House Un-American Activities Commission, uh, which was, you know, really just, you know, there's commies everywhere, there's commies under your bed, there's commies living next door to you, there's commies teaching your children, ah, ah. You know, that sort of era of American politics. Mm. This is really tightly scripted. It's brilliantly acted. It's disturbingly relevant. I personally find the whole Red Scare era quite compelling and frightening. I think that's a really great... I think there's that's the, you know, prestige HBO FX miniseries I'm looking for, is the story of HUAC. It's a good message movie on the importance of journalism, the importance of due process and transparent government and speaking up if something's wrong. Clooney was probably thinking of the Patriot Act and the George W. Bush administration when he made this in 2005. I'm watching this in 2021, so I'm thinking of someone different. (laughs) And uh, there are a lot of parallels. You know, McCarthy would just say shit. Half the time it wasn't true. The other half, the the whole context was twisted that it meant something else than it actually... that he was presenting it as meaning something other than it actually meant. He led this obsessive cult of personality that was dedicated to assaulting basic foundations of democracy, and there were a whole bunch of journalists that sort of egged him on by doing the, you know, both sides false equivalence thing, and people started not objecting because they were worried he'd come after them as well. And all of this stuff is frighteningly familiar. But it has a great script, almost all of it is said in the newsroom, It's all about the history. It's all about the work of journalism. It needed a little more propulsion, though. It's kind of just on the edge of being fantastic. But it makes a great use of archive footage, including a lot of McCarthy. The film itself is in black and white to sort of give it this period sheen. And the cast is just extraordinary. I mean, you've got Strathairn. George Clooney also appears in front of the camera. Robert Downey Jr., Patricia Clarkson, Jeff Daniels, Frank Langella, Reed Diamond, Tate Donovan, Ray Wise. I mean, this is a great cast. And I strongly recommend it to you. It's available for streaming on something I'd never heard of before called Mubi. I'm familiar. Yeah, Mubi. I next watched Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Big switch! Yep. It is an anime... Well, it is also about, uh, you know, fear permeating through a community and this fellow whipping up fear and, you know, going after people he doesn't like. It's also about cheese. And 100% more rabbits. It is an animated family comedy directed by Steve Box and Nick Park, and it is about a cheerful amateur inventor named Wallace, played by Peter Salas, and his hyper-intelligent dog, Gromit. They run a pest extermination company together, and they are assigned by the town to catch a were-rabbit before the annual giant vegetable competition, or as everyone pronounces it in this movie, vegetable. The problem is that, unbeknownst to himself, Wallace is the were-rabbit after an invention malfunctions and, and turns him into one. This is very fun and very strange. It's such an odd tone. It's silly and it's dry and it's absurdist and it's just very slightly rude. The plot is this like really loving homage to classic horror. I mean, there's werewolves. Obviously, that's the parallel here. There are a lot of jokes that go over kids' heads that are just great. And they're just a lot of strange touches. I mean, you already brought up the cheese thing, like the obsession that Wallace has with cheese. I'm only really now realizing how bizarre that is like it's almost a sexual fetish i don't know if i go that far oh come it's on certainly an addiction look at the way that he trembles and shivers whenever he sees a piece of cheese come on it's a feta-ish there's a there's a great clip of someone 
removing the last part of the word cracker. So it's just Wallace going, Gromit, we've forgotten the crack. But like the manic priest played by Nicholas Smith, that is another character who's just like this weird tinge of absurdity running through it that I loved. And it's a really clever script, both in terms of the dialogue that is very amusing and in the slapstick comedy. There are a ton of details little in-jokes just in the signage around town like there's a there's a shop called Harvey's Carrots which is of course a reference to that very old movie Harvey in which I think it's Jimmy Stewart hallucinates a giant rabbit talking to him yeah um and Helena Bonham Carter plays a character yeah Helena Bonham Carter uh plays Wallace's love interest I will say that she doesn't really get to have a, a whole lot of fun but Ray Fiennes as the villain, this sort of posh hunter type competing with Wallace for Helena Bonham Carter's affections, despite Wallace not even really knowing that he's competing with him. It's brilliant against type casting. Ray Fiennes is always so good in comedy, and, you know, he's really good here. I mean, the voice acting in general is just impeccable. Everyone's going for it. And I love Gromit, you know, even though he's a a voiceless character, he's mute. He's just so expressive and exasperated in his body language. And... That is done so well in the stop motion. I love stop motion. I love the texture of it. I mean, there's really no justification financially or business-wise to make a stop motion movie anymore. I mean, it's purely artistic justification because of how difficult and tedious and long it takes to to do all of that. But I adore it. And Aardman. Aardman Studios are the best at it. Yeah, yeah. I I love Leica Studio movies as well. They're great. Mm. Um, we need to do an episode on Kubo and the Two Strings when we get to it. But Julian Knott's score here is also really good. It's got a lot of choirs and some playful atmosphere. It's quite fun. I next watched The Fog, the remake, a supernatural horror movie directed by Rupert Wainwright. It's based on the 1980 John Carpenter movie of the same name, where on an island off the coast of Oregon, they are coded by a mysterious fog as ghost sailors appear, seeking revenge for the town's dark past. Yep. Everyone needs to calm down. This movie is fine. <laughs> it is a perfectly competent update. It is slow to start off, but it, it does pick up once ev- once the fog arrives and everyone is sort of hunkered down in siege mode. Uh, you get the most focus on the trio of Nick, played by Tom Welling, Elizabeth, played by Maggie Grace, and Stevie, played by Selma Blair. But it, it doesn't really explore the suggested friction, the love triangle that they seem like they're trying to build up between the leads. But the dark past is expanded on as well, much more extensively than in the original. It's done in stops and starts and in flashbacks. It really hurts the pace. They should have just done it as one bulk flashback. But there are a few good moments. There's nothing super scary, but... The premise is done decently. I really like that premise, you know, the, the the fog, the mist sort of thing where, you know, there's this, this is just miasma of mist and fog and there's something lurking in it. I mean, I love that. And the fog here has, has a kind of life and a cunning to it. The fog itself has a cunning to it that it didn't in the first, thanks to the advent of CGI. It can behave in a way that is much more, Unnatural. has much more intent to us. The ending is totally nonsensical, though. It, it's almost on the, the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes, Abraham Lincoln ape statue level of just like, well, you just clearly wanted to do something totally different from the original, mm. but 
the thing that you chose to do makes no sense. There are impressive production values, though. The fog looks great. You know, it's a small town setting, winding mountain roads and desolate beaches and things. It, it's got a great sort of New England kind of feel to it. And the design of the, co- the ghosts themselves are cool. I don't know what everyone's freaking out about about this movie being so terrible. I mean, it is a slightly below average update of a slightly above average movie. It's available for streaming in Australia on Stand if anyone is interested. I also watched Doom. It is a science fiction horror movie directed by Andre Barkowiak. It's based on the id Software video game of the same name. In it, a team of Marines are sent to investigate an incursion at a Mars laboratory uh, where they've been doing some archaeology on the planet that has instead turned out zombie-like monsters that has infected the facility. This is a halfway amusing meathead sort of thing. I mean, it, it ditches the hell element of the game and makes it a little more of a generic, you know, zombie kind of experiment gone wrong thing. But there's lots of barely differentiated muscly men wandering about the place and shooting at things. I mean, that's really what this movie is. It's got okay atmosphere. The design's pretty good for all of the, the location stuff. And it's a good translation of the game's look. But it should have gone into the lore more, especially given the changes that they've made. I mean, there's there's not bad ideas here. The idea that they found this ancient civilization that used to live on Mars that has become extinct. I mean, totally different from the hell thing from the video games, but but not a bad idea in its own right. But they just don't explore it enough. There are very few likable characters, though. There are some attempts to create personal drama that are unsuccessful and frequently dropped i mean there's this entirely unnecessary beat where we discover that that the rookie is is taking drugs to take the edge off in combat and like that's just never returned to things like that where they just don't follow through there are a lot of good actors in here as well like overqualified actors but they are all kind of flat you've got dwayne johnson carl urban rosamund pike Ben Daniel. Richard Brake is probably giving the best performance as the worst character, but the action is okay. It, it stretches on a little bit at the end, but I mean, there is that sort of infamous first-person shooter scene where it is entirely from Carl Urban's point of view as he wanders the facility gunning down monsters, and, and that is pretty cool. It's available for streaming in Australia on Binge and Foxtel now. I next watched Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. This is a, a neo-noir black comedy directed by Shane Black. It's partly based on the Brett Halliday book Bodies Are Where You Find Them. And it's set in modern day LA where this, this con-turned-wannabe actor Harry, played by Robert Downey Jr., is you know receiving training from a consultant private eye for the studio named Perry played by Val Kilmer, like he's receiving, you know, training for what it is actually like to be a, a cop or a private eye. And while they're out together at night, they witness a murder. And so they get caught up in this hard-boiled murder plot that is potentially connected to the death of the sister of Harry's childhood crush, Harmony, played by Michelle Monaghan. This is just so fantastic. I love noir. This is a great sort of tongue-in-cheek version of that that approaches all of the tropes with a sarcastic wink it has just so much personality this whip smart shane black script it plays on the narrator concept robbie down robert downey jr is narrating this thing and sort of commenting on things as they go it's tons of barbed back and forth between the characters and the mystery really is is secondary to the character it all it all works the mystery but we're really here for the main trio, and that's great because they're so well-written, they're so likeable, there's such great chemistry between all of the actors. 
Downey and Monaghan have really good romantic chemistry. They insult the audience's intelligence by trying to suggest that Robert Downey Jr. and Michelle Monaghan were in the same year level at high school, however. He is Hmm. fully, like, 15 years older than her. Especially glaring when they have flashbacks to their childhood where with child actors playing the characters and child actors that are the same age. I'm like, no, 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 no. There's a great line from this movie, which is Val Kilmer screaming at uh, Robert Downey Jr. saying, Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! I think that's one of my favorite lines in anything. Yeah. Oh, it's so well written. It's so, so well written. Have you guys seen it? No. I've seen bits and pieces. Oh, you need to watch it. It's so your thing. But I'm a fan of Shane Black. I'm a fan of uh, The Good Guys. The Nice Guys. The Nice Guys. I'm a fan of that movie. Uh, the Good The Good Guys are a local electronic chain store in Australia. <laughs> I'm a fan of them too. Hashtag not sponsored. This really helped revive Robert Downey Jr.'s career. I mean, John Favreau has apparently cited this movie as... The thing that inspired him to look at Robert Downey Jr. for Iron Man. I am a little unsure of its handling of a few bits of subject matter. It's not mean-spirited. It's just a bit clunky. It is sort of shielded by the comically blunt noir tone, though. So I think it actually really works, even if it has kind of aged into being a little more aggressive than it probably seemed at the time. I think it, it actually, in a roundabout way, kind of really works because of the, the general tone of the rest of the film. But it's available for streaming in Australia on Netflix, Stan, and Paramount+. Plus. I next watched Rent, the musical drama directed by Chris Columbus, based, based on Jonathan Larson's stage musical, which follows a group of friends through a challenging year as they deal with a whole bunch of... of different social issues in in the year 1990. I really wanted to like this more than I did. Happily, though, my problems here are almost entirely of staging, not with the story or the musical itself. I'm going to start with the good here. There's some interesting slices of life. There are a big variety of stories. There's no sort of clean endings. It, it really is like a, a nice little character piece with all of these these people. And the characters work well together. The relationships between them are all very interesting, and the cast is outstanding. You've got got a lot of the original stage cast coming in to reprise their roles. Anthony Rapp, Rosario Dawson, Tracy Toms, and Adina Menzel are all particularly good. Yeah, Rosario Dawson actually coming in and replacing the actress from the stage play who was pregnant at the time. And also, like, far too old to be playing a 19-year-old. Yeah. She was, like, approaching 40, I think. Jesse O'Morton's great here, too. Yeah. The, there's some very strong music and songs, and some, I emphasize the word, some of the stagings of those songs are good. I'm thinking of uh, La Vie Bohème and Take Me or Leave Me. Those are both very well done. But the ending is super rushed. I mean, in the space of a song, the John Bon Jovi guy moves to Santa Fe and back. My understanding is they actually cut quite a bit and did quite yeah, a few... Yeah, there's a song called Goodbye Love, which they cut from the movie, which is a shame because it actually is one of the emotional peaks of the musical, where all of the characters sort of come together after a traumatic event. Yeah. But, yeah. I actually think that... my under- I mean, my understanding of the play is that it's mostly sung through. 
Whereas this yes. is definitely not. There's a lot of dialogue scenes. I mean, this has been rewritten and restructured in such a way that the pace and structure of it have changed. And it is also significantly shorter than the stage musical as well. And that that really comes around Shops in the second cut. half after, after a time jump that you really start to speed through things way too quickly. It has a really false finale as well. Like, I really don't like the ending. It actually feels a little bit ridiculous kind of like a disney movie the real problem here is chris columbus deadly deadly choice for director he has no energy for musicals his his direction here lacks the joy and emotion that a musical needs the staging is so dull that a lot of the times it kind of just leaves the characters looking histrionic as they emote and burst into song while columbus just holds on you know, a mid-shot of them, like he's directing a soap opera. It does tend to build as the characters all come together and, and their charisma takes over, but just such a wrong choice, such a wrong choice for the directing of this movie. I think the music is the thing that really benefits in this, and, and the production on the music is really benefits because it's got a far more cinematic scope to the music. Mm. And the recordings just show a lot more polish. You know, is just a thing with Broadway shows and particularly Broadway cast albums. I have seen this movie and I do like it a lot, but I do understand people's complaints, particularly because Rent itself is such a big play for people. Hmm. It being Jonathan Larson's last work is means that it holds a very special place in people's hearts. And it's a play and a musical that holds a very special place in my heart. I had one of my first existential crises listening to <laughs> the music from Rent. So One of. <laughs> one of. It, it, I think it was that and Welcome to the Black Parade, really showing my age there. But, you know, it's such a fantastic piece of work. And it shows how talented all of the performers are. Adam Pascal as Roger, I don't think can be surpassed, and Anthony Rapp as... I think all of the cast does a really... Adam Pascal badly needed a haircut. For sure. He looked like he was in training for the John Bon Jovi biopic. Yes, he, he looked like he was meant to be in Crywolf. But yeah, I did I did use this movie to, uh, to piggyback on putting the stage recording... Uh, on the list, so I'll be getting to that in a few months. Is that the a one with Vanessa Hudgens? No, that's Rent Live. I'm talking about the Broadway filmed thing. Right. Okay. From like their last few performances on Broadway. Yeah. It's available for streaming on Stan in Australia if anyone is interested. Finally, lastly for this week, I saw Eon Flux. It is a sci-fi action movie directed by Karen Kusama. And it is based on the MTV animated show of the same name by Peter Chung. It's set in the 2400s. 400 years before the start of the movie, humanity has been all but destroyed by a plague. They, uh, they, they date the plague as being in 2011. So don't worry, we're safe. It's not, it's not this one. But the survivors now will live in this walled city that are ruled by the family of the vaccine inventor. And they have become oppressive over the generations. Yes, the family Pfizer at war with the family <laughs> Moderna. Two families both alike in dignity in fair corona where we lay our scene. <laughs> they have started to become oppressive over the generations though. And a, a resistance has popped up. Uh, and As they do. a member of the resistance, Eon Flux, played by Charlize Theron, is sent to kill 
the head guy, basically, of, of the town, Trevor Goodchild, played by Martin Sockus, who played Galadriel's husband in Lord of the Rings. Uh, and they're instantly weirded out when they lies, uh, lay eyes on each other because they recognise each other, even though they have no memory of it. Well, Eon Flux has no memory of him, and nothing, it turns out, is as it seems. This is not nearly as awful as people make it out to be. I mean, it is generally undercooked. It's too short. It's only 90 minutes long, which for a big world-building sci-fi thing is just not enough. And it's too shallow as well. And the plot is a little bit bland and generic. There's not much new going on here. But it is vaguely competent, to damn it by faint praise. The narrative and the characters are worked through too quickly. It doesn't explore the world and the ideas enough, but it was notoriously mucked with by the studio. The studio took it away from Kusama in post after her two-hour director's cut was derisively referred to by studio executives as an art movie and they went in and started slicing it into pieces and came up with their own 71 minute disaster that no one could understand and so they brought Kusama back in to oversee this sort of Frankenstein thing that ended up being 90 minutes but still cut out 30 minutes of her own cut and they wouldn't even let her be alone with the editor are unsupervised in case she tried to art it up again. The world here that has been created is pretty cool. It is this quote-unquote utopia that is actually, you know, more of a dystopia, but surrounded by jungle, and it's, it's a neat setting. There are a bunch of neat touches here, really. Most of them aren't explored, though. There's a bunch of weird ones as well, like some lady that's had genetic procedures done to give her hands for feet, and that's, let me tell you, that's a weird thing to look at. It looks pretty good. I mean, some of the bigger effects are wonky, but it tends to look crisp. The action's not so great, though. It's monotonous. I started to zone out. But really, it was probably saved for me by low expectations. But it was saved nonetheless. Interesting, there is a, a Paramount Plus live-action series of this in development from the creator of the, the Teen Wolf TV show. And, and it really has potential. Like, the, the building blocks here are strong, and there's room for it. Uh, but the original animated series actually sounds like kind of wild. Every episode, pretty much, was in a different continuity, and Eon Flux would, like, die at the end of each episode. It'd be, like, a random mission that she was sent on, that she'd die, and, like, the relationships between her and the other characters kept getting, like, slightly redefined in every episode. Really weird. Really, you know, not that this is probably what the uh, the Paramount executives want to hear, but really arty sounding. Anyways, that's me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? Uh, we've started the second season of The Witcher, which is a Netflix series starring all the same people from the first season based on the games and the books of the same name. The second season has a much better pace starting out. We've watched the first two episodes, and it's a really strong start. To a series they ended that I ended up really really liking, so I'm looking forward to getting getting into more of that. We have also watched a film called Backtrack from 2015. It's an Australian film where psychologist Peter Bauer, played by Adrian Brody, his life is thrown into turmoil when he discovers a strange secret about his patients. Risking his own sanity, Peter delves into his past to uncover a terrifying secret which only he can put right. Uh, and this is all stemming from the loss of his daughter as well. This is... To go any further is to like, ruin the film. There's so many twists, aren't there? Yeah. It's, it's this, wild. This is 
a great intimate piece. Mm. Uh, Adrian Brody is fantastic. He always is fantastic. Uh, you also get Bruce Spence here for a little bit. Sam Neill coming cool in. cool to see. Yeah, Sam Neill as Adrian Brody's therapist. Well, his mentor. Which is great. Who acts as his therapist. Yeah. Um, some of the designs of some of these spirits slash visions are yeah. honestly incredible. Mm. Um, I think the trailer gives too much away. It gives away some of the best images of the movie. Yeah, but this is a show. This is a film with great emotional stakes and also ambition to make those emotional stakes affect the world in a tangible sense. But I appreciated what it did. Uh, it has like a Mike Flanagan energy to it, which I quite like. Like a lot of the designs of the spirits, sort the, of. the idea of how like Mike Flanagan light and that sort of stuff can affect one's presence. Yeah. Uh, the director, Michael Petroni, has done a really good job. It's like Mike Flanagan light. I'm just going to have like, a... it's not as good, yeah, it's... but it's touching on a lot of the same tonal thing. More prolific as a writer than he is as a director, but he's also, he's also the guy who created that, that he's also the guy who created that 2020 show <laughs> Messiah. Yeah, that show that we're not getting a second season out of, even though the first season ends up with yeah. a lot of really good questions being A asked. really fun film. It, it's dark, it's personal, uh, and it's unmistakably Australian. And that that's really... I really appreciated that. Uh, we have also watched... Uh, Rivervale, which is an American teen drama television series based on the characters of Archie Comics, adapted for the CW by Roberto Aguaya Sacasa. Rivervale... This is season six, I take sort it. Sort of. Okay, now this is com- complex, because yes, this is Riverdale, but it's Rivervale now. Okay. It's basically a tiny five-episode anthology... They've crossed over with themselves and also been given the opportunity to have their cake and eat it too by both throwing everything they've ever wanted to do at the wall and make it still important and canon. So this is in this is in continuity with the yes. rest of the series. In a way in a way that <laughs> they do one thing yeah. in the in episode one hundred of uh, the show that 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 introduces the multiverse <laughs> introduces the idea of pocket universes. I have heard that that uh, Riverdale has gotten pretty wild. Yeah, but like this, like like this is like think if this is where they've gone by season six, and they're like one of the highest rated shows on the CW, so they're going to be on for a while. What do you think they'll be doing like I season ten? I have no 10? idea. <laughs> Zombies, I'm assuming. Honestly, dude. Honestly, dude. I have absolutely no idea. It's by the end of the Rivervale things they've touched on every horror and horror adjacent thing that teenagers like to me at the end of episode 100 they essentially throw a hand grenade into any (laughs) semblance of reality that the series had been living in uh like it's 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 one it's one phone call that intrinsically ties every concept discussed in Rivervale to the canon of Riverdale in a, in a way that cannot be removed. 
And if you if you choose to remove it, you are being disingenuous and acting in bad faith. I love that they'll probably never mention it again. It is brilliant. They they take influences from Wicker Man and Hereditary to the story of La Llorona to Crisis a little bit of Donnie Earths. Darko, a little bit of... Cri- yeah, Crisis on Infinite Earths, a little bit of uh, The Devil it's... Comes to Riverdale kind of thing. Like, a lot of Twilight Zone and Tales from the Crypt. See, all you're telling me is like, where is my CW Scooby-Doo know, show that does this? But like, at the end of episode 100, I was sitting there just You know going, what we need to do? We need to... We need to make one of those Twitter bots that sends a a, a tweet to Greg Belanti every hour <laughs> in perpetuity until he makes a like a Scooby Doo live action TV show. Send it to Roberto because he's not doing Sabrina anymore. He's so got he's the got space the for it, but it feels like <laughs> it feels like at the end of episode one hundred, I was sitting there going, "You did it, you crazy bastard! You finally done it." You yeah. know. You've gone to the furthest reaches it could possibly go, at least in my conception, but... And Alexander wept for there were no more kingdoms to There were conquer. no more lands to conquer. It is exceptional. It's everything a 100th episode should be. It is yeah. nostalgic. It is making fun of the past. It is twisting things. It is looking towards the future. Like I said, it's the absurd concept yeah. of a TV show crossing over it with is itself. To me, I never thought I'd see something like that, but here we are. Riverdale does the crazy thing you never it. expect. So that's what John and I have seen within the week. Now we are going to play you the trailer to King Kong. I want the cast and crew on the ship within the hour. No, Carl, you can't do this. Tell them the studio pressured us into an early departure. It's not ethical. What are they going to do? Sue me? Huh? They can get in line. I'm not going to let them kill my film. We have three hours to find a new leading lady or we're finished. There are thousands of actresses out of work in this city. Somewhere out there is a woman born to play this role. A woman who will journey into the heart of the unknown. It's a fateful meeting that changes everything. I've come into possession of a map. An uncharted island. A place that was thought to exist only in myth. Wall! There's a wall ahead! You're feeling uneasy, Anne. Feelings growing. It's washing over you. Scream, Anne! Scream for your life! Herb, get the camera.
That was the trailer for King Kong. It is a fantasy adventure movie directed by Peter Jackson, and it is based on the 1933 film of the same name, directed by Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Shodzak. Set during the Depression, the movie follows struggling vaudeville actress Anne Darrow, played by Naomi Watts, who is barely scraping by in a recession-ravaged New York City. Hungry and destitute, she accepts a job offer from the sly and mildly untrustworthy Carl Benham, played by Jack Black, a filmmaker who is setting off with his cast and crew aboard a dingy shipping freighter to make his newest picture. Lured by a solid paycheck and the promise of meeting her idol, Jack Driscoll, played by Adrian Brody, who is travelling with them to write the piece, Anne finds things to be a lot more promising than she'd expected. She and Jack fall in love, shyly courting each other in the cramped hallways of the crowded vessel, and she gets on pretty well with most of the crew. But Carl Denham is keeping a secret. Though he has told his employees they are headed to Singapore, he has actually contracted the boat to travel to the legendary Skull Island, a place shrouded in myth. Denham has obtained a map to its location, however, and when they arrive, they quickly discover that some places are best left forgotten. Attacked by a native tribe, the crew prepares to cast off and depart, but then Anne is taken captive. Strung up as a sacrifice by the tribe's people, she is lowered over the massive wall separating their village from the thick jungle outside. To her shock and horror, she is snatched up by a giant gorilla the size of a small apartment building and whisked off into the wilds. The natives call him Kong. He is played by Andy Serkis, and he is not the only unreal predator on Skull Island. This is a place that time forgot, and so it is also populated by a vast array of dinosaurs and even gigantic, monstrous insects. These are the dangers that Jack and the others must brave to rescue Anne, but while they do, she forms an unusual bond with her giant, hairy captor. Lonely and secretly soft-hearted, the big ape forms a deep affection for Anne, one that eventually becomes mutual. But this is a story destined to end badly, as Denham, dollar signs in his eyes, resolves to capture the beast and ship him back to the mainland, despite the protestations of pretty much everyone. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we think of King Kong. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I think the atmosphere and the spectacle of this movie is incredible. There are some amazing performances in this movie. However, it doesn't do enough to humanize the native tribe of Skull Island, which is a particular sticking point for, for me. You ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I think this was a lot of fun, honestly. And treatment of the indigenous characters aside, I think Kong as a character is quite emotive, and that comes down to Circus's wonderful performance. I think a lot of the cast is really strong. Jack Black, Adrian Brody, Naomi Watts. I think it's a little long. I know that's a bit of a crazy thing to say about a Peter Jackson show, but yeah. All right, you got me queued up, Sean. Three, two, one, go. This is a personal favorite of mine. I really, really love it. I was a little disappointed in it this time, coming back to it after so long. I do think it is too long. I do think it is a little too overindulgent at times, but 
I think it's a great adventure story. I will co-sign your problems with the, the presentation of the tribes people, but I think that Kong himself is just such an incredible creation, yeah. both in terms of effects and in the performance of, of Andy Serkis and his relationship with Anne really, really coheres and holds the whole thing together. I have a production history here. This movie was actually on the docket before The Lord of the Rings was. Jackson loved the 1933 original. It, it is his favourite movie. He saw it when he was nine at a revival screening in New Zealand, and he cried at the end. And he even tried to remake it at home as a 12-year-old. He didn't get very far, but he did build some cardboard sets and a homemade model of Kong, which still survive. He brought them in and showed them to the crew when they were making this movie. It, it really drove his move into filmmaking, and it also drove his original desire to do VFX before he pivoted and became a director. There are references to Kong in his previous work. In Brain Dead, for instance, the, the horror movie he made in 1992, the plague in that movie is said to originate from Skull Island. Mm. But after Universal was impressed by the work that he did for them on The Frighteners, they offered him some other stuff. He was originally offered Creature from the Black Lagoon to remake that, but rather than break Guillermo del Toro's heart, he turned it down. <laughs> Universal learned that he loved King Kong and so they offered him that instead and he originally turned that down as well just because it was it was a big thing to take on you know this thing he held in such high regard yeah but then in his words he quote quickly became disturbed by the fact that someone else would take it over and signed on he was juggling a few projects here he was already in conversation with Miramax on Lord of the Rings but the rights were being very tricky to get a hold of and 20th century fox was actively pursuing him for a planet of the apes remake which would obviously eventually go to tim burton but he turned down apes to do this movie and harvey weinstein who was producing lord of the rings and was still at miramax at that time threw a hissy fit that jackson would dare to go off and do this other movie because he was taking so long and so a deal was struck between universal and miramax to co-finance kong and split territorial distribution. This was formally agreed upon in 1996. Jackson wrote a script for the movie with his wife, Fran Walsh. It was very different from the movie we see here. It was it was kind of like the Brendan Fraser mummy movie in terms of updating it into like a really modern adventure story. It was really more of an adventure serial kind of thing. It originally ended with Jack stealing a plane to help defend Kong above the skies of New York. <laughs> but a significant amount of work was done for this version at Weta. Designs, test footage, models. Peter Jackson had started to approach actors. He flew out to where Titanic was filming and talked to Kate Winslet, who he had worked with before about maybe playing Andaro. He reportedly wanted either George Clooney or Robert De Niro to play Denim. But he came very close to shooting the thing when Godzilla, Planet of the Apes, and Mighty Joe Young started to be filmed, promoted, and come out. And all of a sudden, there was this sort of influx of ape movies and kaiju movies, and Universal got spooked, and they cancelled the project. The whole team was heartbroken, and the prototype model of Kong that they had made was put on display in the lobby at Weta, following on from that. But after the huge success of Lord of the Rings, Universal wanted back on board the Peter Jackson train. And so they approached him during post-production of Return of the King to come back to them and, and have a go at King Kong again. And pre-production began immediately after Return of the King concluded. Most of the crew 
from Lord of the Rings carried over. The 1996 script was ditched. Jackson was not particularly happy with it. He wrote the film from scratch with Fran Walsh and also brought over their writing partner from Lord of the Rings, Philip Boyens, to work on this as well. The rewrite included scenes that had actually been imagined way back for the 1933 film but had been impossible to do at the time. The insect pit, for instance, after they fall down the ravine. That was a, a, a sequence that was originally in the script for the 1933 film, but was cut, both because of technical limitations and because they were afraid of getting it past the ratings board at the time. Yeah. Lumpy, the character played by a human Andy Serkis, uh, the cook, is a character actually that originates in the novelization of the 1933 movie. So there are a whole bunch of tributes paid here and, and some other tributes as well. For instance, when they are talking about what actresses they could get at the start, Denham is talking to his assistant, he suggests Faye. And they say that, you know, Faye's doing a movie with Cooper. This is, of course, a reference to Faye Ray, who originally played Anne in the 1933 com and... Cooper is the director of the 1933 con. Orson Welles became an inspiration for Denham, this sort of very self-confident filmmaker, young guy who will pursue what he thinks is best for the movie beyond the point of reason. While the backstory for Skull Island was meticulously mapped out and constructed to aid in its design and in the design of its creatures, even though most of that never makes it to air. There's a very interesting 20-minute mockumentary on the history of Skull Island on the Blu-ray that goes into the history of the island, that this was a island with a ton of thermal vents on it, which is why it survived the the winter that killed the dinosaurs after the meteor hit, and it sort of became this sort of land that time forgot there. It used to be the home of this... It used to be a lot bigger than it is in the movie. It used to be the home of this very advanced civilization that built the wall, and um, that the wall went on a lot further than it did, that there was a gigantic, you know, epic city back further on, back beyond the wall, but that Skull Island is sinking into the ocean because of earthquakes and geological instability, and that a lot of the island has started to go down. All of these monsters are being forced into the centre a lot more and are coming into contact a lot more. It's why Kong is last of his kind, is that they're... Their original habitats are gone. Their civilization fell into the ocean. All that's left, you know, when the, you see these tribes people living in, in squalor, they're living in the tombs of this previous mm. civilization. And the wall itself, I mean, you see it in those rocky outcroppings that they have to go through on the, the dinghy boats to get there. You know, you can see the ruins of this city and the, the wall if you pay really close attention. None of this is in the movie, but it was, was mm. meticulously plotted out so, so that they could design the world properly. And also I read somewhere that apparently the, the natives there are people who like landed on Skull Island in shipwrecks and stuff. No, that was something that they thought about but ended up not pursuing, even though I think they really should have. The original idea that they had yeah. was that it would would be Dutch sailors who got shipwrecked there, yeah. which I think, frankly, would have been a much more intelligent choice, given yeah. that it would have avoided the whole, you know, scary black tribes people racism trope that this movie, like, falls into that pothole badly. 
it avoids the cannibal holocaust of it all. Yeah, they they should have done that. They should have done that these were the descendants of these sort of European trades vessels that got shipwrecked there and, you know, sort of went all Colonel Kurtz from Apocalypse Now. And It, it would have actually made more sense for them to quote Heart of Darkness in that situation then. Yeah, that would have been a Rather lot more interesting. Rather the, than the way that that line ends up being now is... Super unfortunate. To play Kong, Andy Circus observed gorillas close up in a zoo, where he got into like a weird soap opera-ish drama between two gorillas. There was a female gorilla that loved him and, you know, hung out with him all the time and would like try and pat him through the bars and, you know, <laughs> talk to him. And then there was like the alpha gorilla who did not like this at all and would like pound the cage as he walked past and like try to scare him. And then when Andy Circus's wife came to came one time too, the female gorilla got like super upset with her and started like trying to throw things at her. <laughs> but he also really wanted to see them in the wild. And so he floated the idea of going to Rwanda to see mountain gorillas. The production instantly said no. The insurance they could not get the insurance for it. There were a whole lot of problems in Rwanda at the time. They made a movie about it and everything. So instead, he just paid his own way without telling anyone. And Because mm, he's Andy Circus. And he came back with hours of footage that he had shot, like, up close within, like, three or four feet of these mountain gorillas that he used to shape his performance. But he also gave the footage to Weta for their animation and their designs. The movie was shot in New Zealand. The vast majority of it is shot on stages. This is not like Lord of the Rings where they went out and they used the, the natural environment. This was very much a studio-bound film. Even the location shoots were set builds. It was just that they had to build sets that were too big to be housed in the studio. For instance, the, the canyon that they are running through with the Brontosaurus stampede. That is a, a location shoot, but not even like a location shoot out in the middle, out in the middle of nowhere. Just a, like a location shoot on the side of the road not too far outside yeah. of wellington they didn't go into the jungle or anything all of that stuff is blue screen the venture the the ship that they arrive in was built in the parking lot against a blue screen and long shots for it used a tuna boat that the production bought and refitted to look like a 30s boat andy circus was on set in a box crane to play kong he was sort of lifted up over naomi watts he was there physically so that they could play off of each other. He's done up in this very strange outfit that kind of made him look like an evil teddy bear. And they had a voice distorter on set, on set like this giant, giant boom box with a voice distorter for him to do the roars through. And he did the motion capture in post as well. It was groundbreaking stuff at the time. It was building on on what they had done with Gollum and taking the art of motion capture one step further. The movie went way over budget, though. Jackson paid a lot of the difference himself, but Universal was nervous. They didn't even agree to the overruns until after they saw a rough cut of what had already been shot. And they were very impressed by that, so they allowed that to, to go forward. They even allowed it to go over the previous mandate for runtime. They had originally insisted the movie not run more than 2 hours and 40 minutes, but they let that lapse once they saw Jackson's rough cut. I think they probably shouldn't have. But the overruns made it the most expensive movie ever made at the time of its release. Howard Shaw was originally hired for the score. Jackson ultimately decided that it wasn't working, though, and replaced him with James Newton Howard seven weeks before the film released. 
It released ultimately on the 14th of December 2005 in the United States, where its widest release was in 3,627 theatres. It opened number one against The Family Stone and The Producers, although the latter was in limited release. It was receiving an Oscar qualifying run before going wide in early 2006. King Kong was a box office hit. It made $557 million on a $207 million budget, and it was the fifth highest grossing movie of 2005. It is the 184th highest grossing movie ever, still. And apparently the movie tie-in game, super popular. Oh yeah, I used to play that a lot. It was released on the same day in Australia. It was released wide here in 480 theatres, and it opened number one against Good Night and Good Luck. It made $16 million of its total gross here. It was a critical success as well. It has an 84% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, And the critics' consensus there reads, Featuring state-of-the-art special effects, terrific performances, and a majestic sense of spectacle, Peter Jackson's remake of King Kong is a potent epic that's faithful to the spirit of the 1933 original. Audiences enjoyed it as well. They gave it an A-minus cinema score. Although, I think you will notice that sentiment towards it has somewhat retroactively soured as the years have gone by. Nevertheless, it, it won and was nominated for a whole bunch of awards. It won three Oscars, Best Achievement in Sound Mixing, Best Achievement in Sound Editing, and Best Achievement in Visual Effects. It was also nominated for Best Achievement in Art Direction. It won the BAFTA Award for Visual Effects. It was also nominated there for Production Design and Sound. At the Golden Globes, it was nominated for Best Director and for Best Original Score. At the MTV Movie Awards, it was nominated for Best Movie and Best Fight for the fight between Kong and the Planes at the end. At the Teen Choice Awards... It was nominated for Choice Action Adventure, Choice Movie Rumble between King Kong and the T-Rex, Choice Mm. Sleazebag for Jack Black, and Choice Hissy Fit for King Kong when he throws his tantrum and accidentally gets hit by a rock slide. Mm. But perhaps already showing that this was going to be a divisive movie retroactively, it was also nominated at the Stinker's Bad Movie Awards for most intrusive musical score and most overrated film. Strange little addendum that we actually only found out at the very start of 2021 when Adam Wingard was doing press for Godzilla vs. Kong. Jackson briefly explored a prequel in 2013 that was going to be directed by Adam Wingard. It was going to be called Skull Island, and Jackson wanted to set it in World War One. The studio didn't want a World War One movie, though, and the rights had already moved to Warner Brothers, which really complicated things, given that this is a movie that was put out by Universal. Wingard suggested maybe moving it to modern day and trying to work it out that way, but nothing ultimately came of it. Warner did their MonsterVerse instead, and Wingard, as I mentioned, would obviously go on to direct Godzilla vs. Kong. So that is the production history of King Kong. And why don't we start out here by establishing which version of this movie you watched. Was it the 180 minutes cut, or was it the 207 minute cut? Whichever version is three hours long. So, did you have the scene where they are attacked on rafts while they are crying, trying to cross a lake? No. Okay, you watched the theatrical cut. Jesus! And you are better off for it, because I watched the extended version for the first time, I might add. I I never saw it before, and it was far too long. It gets longer? 
Yes, the theatrical cut is 187 minutes long. The extended cut is a solid 200 minutes. Jesus Christ. Okay. Peter, come on. That extended stuff really does hurt the pacing, like, badly. And here was me thinking, we get all these different interactions with, like, the creatures and shit on the island, and, oh god, longer? Okay. Did you think you were watching the extended cut? No, I didn't think there was one. I didn't think there it's could Peter be. It's Peter Jackson, of course there is. It's Peter Jackson, and there's also, like, 12 hours of documentary material on a bonus disc on the Blu-ray. <laughs> I think I texted you guys when I came across that because it was just so... Let's see if I can find the actual list I sent you. Because I spent fully, like, four nights worth of viewing just the bonus features. Good lord. Yes, King Kong has a three-hour making-of documentary, six hours of video diaries, two hours of miscellaneous featurettes, 45 minutes of deleted scenes that don't appear in either cut of the movie... And even the blooper reel is 19 minutes long. <laughs> That's too much, bud. That's too much stuff. I mean, th- this is my main criticism of the movie. And if I watch it again, I don't think I will watch the extended cut. I-, I think if I, when I return to it, and I think I will, I will just see the theatrical cut because those 13 minutes kill the pace somewhat, like, really badly. Mm. It's really all stuff that is once they get to the island. It's island stuff and finale stuff there's there's nothing in that like that whole 70 minutes before kong even turns up is theatrical cut entirely (laughs) nothing is added there that was all there originally even though i actually think there were there are a few things that they maybe should have added back in from that that not weirdly not from the extended cut but from the 45 minutes of deleted scenes that wasn't in the extended cut i actually think that there are a couple of things that they should have put back in there is a lot more for preston to do in those deleted scenes he you really sort of it builds him up more as sort of the jiminy cricket on the shoulder of carl denham yeah he is sort of starting to figure out that something's wrong here but then there is also a scene just when they get to the island where they're filming a scene on the shoreline and ants, it's in the trailer, you know, scream ants, scream for your life. Ah! And then Kong roars in the background. And that actually provides a whole lot more reason why the natives capture her and sacrifice her to Kong. is because Kong's been like, oh shit, that sounds pretty good. And, <laughs> you know, that that it, this has prompted the natives' decision to capture. Whereas in the theatrical cut, it kind of gets a little bit caught up in the mania of them attacking and you know killing a whole bunch of the crew and then Hayes and the captain arriving and shooting them and it it gets a little lost in there but it also uh, actually is much more helpful having that scene in there for the geography of Hayes and the rest of the crew because as it stands when the sound guy gets impaled you know, she screams, and then it cuts back to Hayes and Jimmy on the boat, and then all of a sudden, like, three minutes later, they're there. Mm. Whereas in those deleted scenes, you know, that reaction shot of them on the boat was meant to be when they had done the the scream and roar response down on the shore. Anyways, Mm. I really loved this movie when it came out, and I didn't really have the patience for it this time. (laughs) I I see what you're getting at. I actually really like all the stuff on the boat. Oh, me too. On the way there. That's some really good closed room, intimate stuff. And uh, Brody and Watts really do sell that, you know, love at first sight sort of thing. What they do very well in the early part is the depression era of it all. Mm. Yeah. 
the fact that even the people on the boat are having to really push up against their own moral limits in order to make ends meet. Mm. A, a real theme throughout this movie is desperation and the search for purpose and meaning. Like, the reason Denim keeps going is everything he's lost and everything he's sacrificed has to have a purpose, has to have a reason. That's why whenever anyone on yeah. his crew dies, he just doubles down, because that's all he can do. But it's also kind of like... It, it is also, in a, in a way, about sort of the destructive force of capitalism as well. Yeah. Like, you have the yeah. connection of the Depression era in New York with, you know, this capitalistic enterprise that arrives at the island and then wreaks havoc. You know, Denham's purely money-motivated decision to capture Kong instead of leaving the poor bastard alone. Just the, the way that everything is pushed and pushed and pushed. It's sort of this, you know, modern industry and modern humankind coming to this place that time forgot and... It's very sort of almost an ecological movie, you know? Mm. Mm. There was a scene that was re-added to the extended cut where right after they enter the jungle, they hear stuff, you know, rustling in the in the underbrush and they panic and shoot at it. And that when they go to investigate, they find it's just this very small, very, you know, helpless and unaggressive dinosaur mm. that is now mm. dying slowly. And that sort of, you know, put a put a real stamp on that whole theme that, that, you know, we're here, everyone, modernity has come to the jungle, and it's mm. not going to end well for anyone. It's somewhat anti-colonialism, although it doesn't go far enough into that to actually be yeah. a theme. I mean, the, the tribes people thing is, like, horribly mishandled. Horribly, horribly oh, mishandled. Yeah. Like, just from the from the way that they all sort of, you know, shake and gyrate and chant as their eyes roll back in their head to show only the whites. I mean, it's a... And the way that they, they're all decked out in, like, the most stereotypical island native get-up with, like, you know, bones through their noses and their lips and their eyebrows and, you know, braided hair and they're dancing around in skirts made out of foliage... It's really, really unfortunate. It's a, it's about as poorly handled as you could handle it. Yeah. They play it so straight. They play it so straight. Yeah. The idea that they had initially of having it be Dutch families and Dutch sailors having landed there and been stuck there would have been, one, far more tactful, and two, far more interesting yeah. about how a civilization is established on a place so hostile. Creepier, too, because the idea was that they were all going to be, like, decked out in, like, the decades-old ruins of these old uniforms and clothes that they have, and, you know, their, their houses and their, you know, lodgings were going to be adorned with, like, scrap metal from the ships that got ruined. We would just give it a little more of a, I don't know, a kind of what-the-hell-is-going-on-here vibe. Yeah, makes it a place yeah. where... Things and expectations clash. Mm. Mm. But my main problem with the pace of this does come to a lot of the stuff on the island. We get encounter after encounter with terrible, terrible creatures and beasties. Um, kind of the same thing over and over, with no real thematic purpose. Yeah, it's kind of my same issue with some of the uh, big action sequences in Battle of the Five Armies. It's just a lot of stuff that doesn't need to be a lot of stuff i like the thing in the bug pit and i love the sequence mm. where kong 
is playing keepaways with the three T-Rexes. That's a great mm. set piece. But the stampede of the poor long neck fellas just goes on a little long. Although it is, it is, super it bad is fun to see the first mate on the ship, Hayes, kick a velociraptor in the head and see Adrian Brody shoulder check one. Hayes is like low-key my MVP of the movie. Like, I really yeah. love that character. Yeah. He's great. I was so sad when he died. Hmm. Yeah, that sucked. <laughs> to be fair, like, they kill off most of the characters. Yeah. <laughs> like, this has a gig- Like, apparently the body count of this is, like, significant. Yeah. To the point where they actually had to, like, start being careful because they needed to plausibly keep enough alive that they could sail back. <laughs> yeah. I do like the relationship that Hayes has with the younger guy, Jimmy. The Tom Holland-looking kid. Yeah, Jamie Bell. Yeah. Who was Tintin in Tintin, and also... Bernie Taupin in in Rocketman. You know, they dropped that character as soon as they're willing to. Um, the middle feels just a bit aimless. With some decent set pieces, but not much else going on. The scene in the bug pit felt like the precursor to all of the Mirkwood stuff in The Hobbit. I do love the worms. And how they devour Andy Circus. That part's a lot of fun. Those bugs that are like jumping on Adrian Brody are wetters. They are a New Zealand yeah. insect that the studio yeah. is named after. I do like those stumpy dinosaurs. They're kind of like dog like carnivores. Yeah. And this is the thing is that the, the dinosaurs are not strictly accurate to dinosaurs because no. the idea is that, you know, they've been there since the meteor wiped out the rest of the dinosaurs and whatever evolution would have happened you know they've sort of been evolving as well to suit their environment there just when i saw how small the t-rex's arms were i was like oh i can't be angry but at that him. fight between kong and the rexes that's some great stuff yeah, yeah. brutal too like the way that he yeah. cracks open the the jaw and splits the cheeks or bites out the tongue i and... do like how he like moves the jaw up and down when he's done it yeah yep Ability to bite my arm neutralized. Kong is just pretty adorable. Yeah. Like, he's kind of yeah. scary, but he's also adorable. Like, when he's acting, like, super grumpy after Anne tells him no, he does the big tantrum and then the rock slide falls on his head and he just sits there trying to pretend that that, that hasn't totally undercut his sense of menace. Yeah, and the bit after he fights the dinosaurs, he's acting like he's not hurt and not injured. Yeah. He's trying to act tough for Anne. I think my favourite moment from Kong is when Anne is doing the whole uh, vaudeville shtick with the cane and everything and he just knocks the cane <laughs> From her hand. Yeah. And, and he, he just loves it. And then he just keeps knocking her down. As he was doing that, I was like, okay, the first time was funny, Kong. Now you're just pushing it. Yeah, I, I can tell you exactly why this goes on as long as it does on the island. I mean, Jackson himself tells you it's Heart of Darkness. I mean, that's what yeah. he's doing here. They're coming to all of the stations as they go upriver and things mm. are getting progressively worse and worse and crazier and crazier as they go. And Denim... Denim is not the narrator of Heart of Darkness. He is Kurtz. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the point we're working towards. You know, Peter Jackson helpfully tells us all of this by having Hayes explain the the themes of Heart of Darkness in a monologue. Yeah, and the in the bit where Jimmy's like, "It's not an adventure story, is it?" Yeah. Did the title of the book like 
not indicate anything to you, boy? I don't have as much problem with the pacing of the island as you do, except in the extender cut, because the extender cut adds a whole other set piece, which is the the attack on the, the rafts as they're trying to raft their way across open water, like an underwater dinosaur comes up. Big chompy boy? Yeah. But I actually think just the general setting out of it, the, the brontosaurus stampede through to, you know, the the stuff with the log and then down at the end of the cavern. I mean, I think it walks a, a line enough that, that it flows decently. And you do need to have a bit of time to cut away and then come back to Anne to let mm. that relationship develop. What I do love about this is the film's sense of style and the visual language it's using. Yeah, the mood and the atmosphere are great. Yeah, when we're on the island, I understand why the native population are on the absolute edge of the island, because hell no! I'm not Mm. going into that damn island. Not a chance! When we're in New York, it's extremely stylized and looks outstanding, I Mm. find. Peter Jackson has managed to make this thing ooze with, like, old-school style, but with modern techniques. Oh, and it is so clear that he adores the original story. Yeah. Yeah. And and I've said it before, like, very few movies deserved a remake at that time as much as King Kong did. Like, it deserved the remake because of everything that they could suddenly do in 2005 that they couldn't do even 10 years earlier. And it still looks great. Yeah, it has this you know, epic myth-like feel to it. It has taken that very short, like, 90-minute or so 1933 movie that has that charming but very dinky stop-motion monkey that, you know, isn't even great stop-motion. Like, it's a very, you know, chunky, dodgy-looking stop-motion monkey. And it it expands it out into being this, this sort of gigantic, atmospheric you know, classic sort of fantasy quest story with, you know, myth and history and and all of this stuff. I mean, for as much as I have to say about the pacing, which has been exasperated by my watching of the extended cut, I still really love this movie. I'm I'm only a little disappointed in it in terms of how much I loved it when I was younger. You know, when I saw this in cinemas at the age of 11, I said for like the next two or three years that this was my favourite movie, full stop. Yeah. And then you saw Moulin Rouge. No, Moulin Rouge came a bit later than that. The structure of it, I quite appreciate. I think it's smartly expanded in a lot of ways. Like The characters and the extra time that we spend with the characters, I think, are, are, are good. I quite like the ship's crew. I like Lumpy. I like Hayes. I like Jimmy. I like the captain. I'm actually a little disappointed when we get back to New York and Jimmy and the captain don't turn up again. Yeah, they should have at least mm. shown up. Yeah. Because it defeats kind of... The- point of them or just you know pull the trigger kill them off too on the island yeah have denim properly take control of the crew once the captain goes carl chandler here as the the old school actor bruce baxter yeah easily easily the smartest character in the entire movie (laughs) yeah i love when his posters get vandalized he sees one of them with him with a mustache and he's like maybe Hmm. i do like the scene where adrian brody just wants to keep going and then he's like I'm so sorry that we're going to lose Miss Starrow. She's a nice gal and everything. But no, I'm yeah. not going any further. Driscoll calls him a coward. If he were a coward, he wouldn't have gone onto the island. If he were a coward, he wouldn't have gone as far in as he has. He says something like, in real life, heroes don't look like me. 
You know, they, they have a bald spot and a pot belly. They don't look like me. I'm just an actor with a motivation problem. And my problem is that I've lost my motivation. But he comes back too. He, he, he goes back and he basically makes the captain come and, and rescue them all yeah. at the end. And you actually do get a little bit more of that insect pit in the extended cut, which was one of the few additions to the extended cut I quite like, where you get a little bit more for Bruce to to do. He sort of, he, he, he doesn't just swing, he sort of lands and brings the rope down to get them out and then sort of just tells them to stay behind him as he like guns down all of these cockroaches as they're climbing the rope. He gets a moment to be a bit of a hero. And then, you know, to my eternal admiration, when he's back in New York and he sees Kong start to freak out, he's like, yep, I'm checking out. I'm leaving right now. This will not end well. <laughs> Basically, I, I think that he probably makes it out better off than anyone at all. Yeah, I do. Like when King Kong ex- like bursts out of the front window of the Alhambra, I have to imagine if I was there in person, I'd be laughing my ass off. For the simple reason, I didn't have to pay the exorbitant bullshit fees to see the giant monkey do his thing. Yeah. When the class action lawsuit comes against Carl Denham, you know, that's... that's. Oh, he is ruined! Oh, totally ruined, yeah. I do like... Oh, what was the joke you said about Kong picking up all of those blonde women being like, that's not Anne, throw? That That's essentially Alfred Hitchcock's casting process. <laughs> when Kong looked at that actress... I was sort of narrating him like, no, 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 it was in my contract that Anne would be here, and she's not here. She wasn't here for the rehearsals, and you promised. (laughs) You said during the rehearsals it would be Anne for the actual performance, not this understudy, okay? I can't perform like this, Carl. I can't do it. Yeah, I, I really do like the relationship between Kong and Anne. I think that's very well done. I mean, it's it's such a testament to the CGI and to Circus that mm. you buy Kong yeah. as a character and you buy the emotional relationship that he forms with Anne. Yeah. I mean, the scene where they're on the ice in New York in Central Park, the, the one scene that turns this into a Christmas movie, it's such a beautiful little moment for those characters that gets absolutely upended by arsehole army yeah. people. I love that moment. I mean, it gets so much ridicule from people, but I love it. I, I don't consider them arsehole military types. Kong has killed a lot of people. Oh, yeah. I do love the part where Kong punches the top of the car that... He punches down on the front of the car that Adrian Brody's in. That moment was brutal as hell. Um, I'm texting you an image of the get-up that Andy Serkis wore behind the scenes when he was just acting on set for the benefit of the other actors. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, you need something that looks like that they've done something to help with the proportions of, like, his head, his arms, and you need to do that Mm. because having all of that padding on there as well will change how he moves. And you need Mm. that stuff to inform performance, because as you might notice, gorillas have a different musculature than humans do. So it's really really complex, (laughs) even more so than the work he did on the Apes trilogy, because Mm. they're more similar. This is very detailed stuff that he needs to make the performance really, really work. Mm. And while it looks hilarious... And it does. 
I could see the benefit of having that sort of thing. Costuming informs performance. Yeah. We, we've said this before, and it stands true for motion capture as well. And even aside from Circus, the cast is all very strong as well. I like yeah. Adrian Brody here, hmm. especially in the, the first third on the boat. Part one of the movie, you could say. I believe the love at first sight and the infatuation between him and Watts, mainly from his side, just like the looks on his face that he gets. Adrian Brody is just one of those detail-oriented actors, and you can tell he throws everything in when he's doing a performance. And I like Naomi Watts here. I like Evan Park as Hayes. I like Jamie Bell as Jimmy. I like Thomas Kreshman as the captain. He's an actor that I just like to see whenever he turns up in things. I like Jack Black as Denim. I really like Jack Black yeah. here. He's not doing the Jack Black thing. It's it's my favourite Jack Black performance of his entire career. Like I would have to say Bernie is still my top mm, Jack Black yeah. performance, but... Bernie or King of Polka. Yeah, but he's not doing the Jack Black thing here, but he still has that charisma. Like, the charisma still comes through. When he's in the bug pit, when he sees that the film has been destroyed he just goes completely mind the pun ape shit he, he, he completely goes ape shit on these bugs and it's actually really scary to see this guy who up until this point was relatively normal just go completely feral mm. Mm. i mean that is such a great sequence like i love like right from the top yeah. when they're on the log and kong emerges Hayes death mm. you know all of the like the lighting of that that they've got the flare going Hmm. With all of the insects and things, and the, the, yeah. that's when uh, the James Newton Howard. That's probably my favorite moment of the score. When the flare went out, I said out loud, "Meat's back on the menu, boys." What was like? You had seen this before, right? Oh, a long time ago, ages I, ago. I didn't remember ages much of ago. it, right? So this is as as good as fresh. Yeah, yeah. The thing that always stuck in my mind was the ripping open the jaw of the <laughs> dinosaur. Yeah. I think that's the moment that has always stuck with me to the point where when Godzilla did it in Godzilla and he just breathed the atomic fire into, you know, the Muto's throat, I thought to myself, God, Big Fella is really one-upping Boss Monkey on this one, isn't he? Also, this Kong is kind of small in comparison to, you know, the more recent adaptations of the character because unlike in Kong Skull Island he is massive and in Godzilla vs. Kong he is even bigger. Yeah. This version of Kong is practically a baby in comparison. Yeah. Well he's not having to go up against kaijus. No. In this iteration mm. he's... Just dinosaurs. Yeah just dinosaurs. I mean he is about as big as a T-Rex and a T-Rex although yeah. in comparison to human beings much much larger than us you know a T-Rex was not like the size of a of an office building. No. If this King Kong went up against Godzilla, <laughs> it would be like a mosquito going up against Andre the Giant. I, I do like how they translated the whole King Kong on top of the Chrysler building with the planes and everything. Empire State hmm. building. Empire State? Right, yeah. I do think that that goes a little long, I do Which think. is, again, sort of ties into the themes of, the, you know, corporate mercenaryism that... The Empire State Building was built in the early days of the Depression. Everyone was losing their jobs. They were moving into that tent city in Central Park that, you know, anti-government sentiment became so much that they named it after the president at the time, Hooverville, for Herbert Hoover. 
And meanwhile, it was just this extraordinary, like, waste of money building the biggest building in the world. Like a 12-month process. Yeah, 14 months to build this thing um, over the city skyline. And then it was so big and had so many offices and the economy was so bad that they didn't even fill all of the building with tenants until the 50s. Mm. I just, I think one of my favorite behind-the-scenes things was 14 months for the real life empire state and 18 months for the digital one for the movie yeah well they had to do a lot of research too on just like the layout of 30s new york because they had to go in and they had to look at plans and you know they had to look at what was still around that was there at the time you know what could they see in old photos and i mean really they tried to get it as as accurate as possible but they even were allowed up they they went to the top of the Empire State Building just for for research, and they went up to that very very top where all the antennas are now. And like that. <laughs> the nah. the video footage is actually like really garbled and distorted from the video camera that uh, Peter Jackson was carrying because once you get up there with all of those antennas that are like bringing in signals and reflecting signals from all over New York City, like there's so much just radio waves up there that the camera just and started to wind go... as well. And Peter Jackson was like, yeah, as soon as I saw that that was happening, I I, I climbed down again. I, th- I thought if that's happening to my camera, what's it doing to my brain? Yeah. And that led him to making The Hobbit three movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, to be fair to Peter Jackson, that sounds a whole lot like that decisions were new lines. Yeah, that, end- that, that ending is iconic. I mean, yeah. it is iconic. Yeah. I do love when he grabs the plane, throws it at the other plane, and they just crumple like fucking paper. Yeah. I mean, weirdly, it, it was King Kong, the original King Kong, that kind of saved the Empire State Building from being a failure. You know, it, it yeah. baked it into the cultural consciousness and, you know, put it in people's minds so much. You know, they were having real trouble justifying it and, and keeping, like... yeah. So much of it was unoccupied that they would cycle the lights on the different floors over the over the night so it didn't just look like this barren building with no one in it. Mm. It tied it to the popular culture yeah. in a way that became really yeah. iconic. Yeah, the line that Denim says at the end, "'Twas beauty that killed the beast." No, mate, it was you! Mm. Like, explicitly, every decision you made led to this catastrophe. As far as I'm concerned, it's all on you. <laughs> You led to New York having far fewer blonde women. (laughs) And massive property damage and loss of life. Kong is just picking them up like, nah. (laughs) Chucking them over his shoulder, yeah. But that final line, I mean, in the original story, that's in the original film, that's Denim already starting to try and spin to get out of this. Yeah. Mm. And when Jackson was making the movie, he had always envisioned... Like, right from the 90s version that he was on, he had always envisioned that line being spoken by an old lady played by Fay Ray, who played Anne in the original. Yeah, that would have been amazing. They approached her about it. You know, she was very, very old. She was, I think, in her her 80s or 90s. And Naomi Watts met her, and they had a whole bunch of conversations, and she always said, oh, no, no, I won't do it. Her answer kept getting softer and softer every time Jackson asked. The last time he asked her, she said, never say never. But then she passed away before filming started. I I can imagine how godlike that woman would be to... Peter Jackson. So to mm. for him to be asking her and like meeting her in person would have been amazing for him. Yeah. And there's like 
part of that, you know, incredible amount of behind the scenes footage is footage of her meeting with him and with Naomi Watts. And you get to, to yeah. see a bit of her in her old age. And yeah, I, I, I think that it's an appropriate ending. It's, it's like a nice Dawa ending. I, yeah. I like that it doesn't try the happy ending. I like that. And, and, you know, obviously this is a compliment of the first movie more than it is for this remake, but I, I think it's a good ending that, that doesn't try and give the audience nice feelings to walk out of the theatre with. Yeah. It's a tragedy. I, I like the epic scope of this. I like the narrative arc. I just think that Peter Jackson loved the material a little too much. He just needed someone yeah. in the editing room to talk him down from being so overindulgent from being a little bit pretentious with all of the Apocalypse Now stuff and the, the mm. you know, very important narration. I know he loves his extended cuts. He keeps doing his extended cuts, but I actually would be really interested in this instance to see him do an abridged cut. You know, maybe <laughs> come back all these years later and cut it down to somewhere in the two and a half hour range. Mm. And I think that it would be a better movie for it. You know he can't do that. He's not Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> Look, I'll, I would just settle for him directing another narrative movie. <laughs> yeah. I know I know that he's... I mean, he did that They Shall Not Grow Old thing for World yeah. War One and the Beatles documentary, which... Have you actually read about this? Because it's actually, like, kind of crazy. Oh, it's insane. Like, the, yeah. the, the technology that they have used is, like, going to fundamentally revolutionise mm. documentary making because they're using all of this mm. archive footage that was, like, shot in the 60s. It's really bad. Yeah. And he's, like, run it through this, like, AI program combined with some other techniques that have, have like, made it look like high, like digital high def. Yeah. It's, it's taken yeah. all of the age out of it. But because they were filming it, in the 60s, it, it had a mono soundtrack. And Giles Martin, the son of George Martin, has come back and he's put it into stereo. But not only that, but like they're using these new computer programs to pull out all of the different instruments independent mm. of each other and then remix it into a surround sound system. There are, there are apparently moments in the documentary where a couple of the Beatles, I forget which ones they were. I'm not that big of a Beatles fan. I don't remember the names very well. Well, I remember the names, but I can't, you know, place them between which ones they are. But two of the Beatles were like, you know, having these little private conversations that they would try and hide from the documentary crew that was filming them. They they figured out that even though they were mic'd up, if they started basically strumming the guitar and plugged the microphone into the guitar, or I don't know, basically their conversation would be covered by the music. And Peter Jackson has figured out a way, you know, 60-odd <laughs> years later, to go in and separate their voices from all of the rest of the noise. And it's like pitch perfect. It's crystal clear. Mm. It, it mm. like, there's just... I mean, there's an incredible technological advancement to all of that, but I would really like to see him turn his attention to to a another narrative movie. I would be surprised yeah. if he was an actual time traveler at this point. Might have been easier to time travel. <laughs> I don't know. Is is there a because because he hasn't done an original story for a very probably not since the Frighteners. No. Not since Frighteners. And Frighteners is excellent. So that's his sort of wheelhouse is adapting things. And I mean, I don't know. Is there, is there some big fantasy or science fiction property that you'd want him to want that you'd want to get your hand him to get his hands on? Honestly, I have no idea. Hmm. I'd want to give him the opportunity to direct an entire creep show movie. Yeah. 
Yeah, another big horror thing. Get him thing. back to his horror roots. Yeah. I know that we both, we all said walking out of June that uh, that would have been great, a great Peter Jackson movie. Yeah. Mm. But again, that would have been a hell of a lot longer as well. <laughs> yeah, that would have been a four-hour movie. Uh, I think we're coming up to the end of our discussion on this. Do we have anything IMDb? We do have something from the IMDb Parents Guide for the Uninitiated. This is when we take a look at the perverse or prudish entries in the IMDb Parents Guide. And sometimes, at the same time, they're both prudish and perverse. Just the general overreactions that people have. This is... On the prudish side of things, these are all included in the violence and gore section for King Kong. Cave-dwelling islanders wear bones through their noses and lips and eyebrows. We see monkeys in a zoo picking bugs off of each other. That's just being nice. (laughs) It's not nice for the bugs, but that's just the monkeys being nice to each other. From the perspective of the bug, it is terrible. A man steps in animal feces. We hear a squish and see him smear it on a nearby piece of wood. Again, in the violence violence. and gore section. A man gags and vomits when a tray of food is placed in front of him. That is neither violence nor gore. Put that in frightening and intense, I guess, if you squint. But you can't put that in violence and gore. Mm. I don't care how bad the meal is. You're unsatisfied with the lack of a bodily fluid section? Well, now we're going to move on to say who our MVPs are for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and who we would recast with this podcast patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? (laughs) I will start us off and I will say that my MVP here is Andy Serkis. I think it's an incredible performance as Kong. He, He makes that believable. He makes the emotion between that character and with Anne believable. It's it's a really great performance that builds on Gollum, really shows you that he understands motion capture better than anyone, yeah. and he makes the movie work. You know, the movie doesn't work if you don't believe Kong, and you believe Kong, and that's thanks to Andy Serkis. And it's a fun performance as Lumpy. Yeah, yeah. He, he does get to pull double duty in a really fun way. I just love seeing him in live action, you know? In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I'm going for the scene on the log bridge where they encounter Kong through to them being rescued from the insect pit. I think that's the the absolute best bit of the, the movie. I think it captures, you know, the sort of epic, mythical quality to it. You go down to the pit, it captures captures the sort of horror of Skull Island. It's so well filmed, it's so well staged. My my man Hayes gets a gets a really cool moment in the sun before he gets killed. All of the stuff down in the in the pit is so so well done. Lumpy gets that incredible death of giant leech sucking his face. Um it's it's my favourite part of the film, definitely. And in terms of who I would recast with character actor John Lithgow I thought a little bit about this. There are sort of, I don't know, I I kept, and to some extent still am, jumping between three different characters, between Denim, Mm. between Hayes, and between the captain of the boat. And see, I feel like he could suit any of them, but I think if I'm being super honest, I probably have to go with the captain of the boat. I think I would cast him there. I think that he, as this sort of 
you know, stern sailor who just won't put up with any of Carl Denham's shit, you know, that would suit him really well. You, he'd get, you know, moments to be a bit of a badass. Coming in with the machine gun, with the bugs, you know, them trying to capture Kong at the end, he would get to scream at Jack Black, it's over, you goddamn lunatic. <laughs> and I can't pass that up, so... Uh, yeah, I'm going to go with the captain. For me, I'd have to give my MVP to the team at Weta Digital. Visually speaking, Kong, as an individual CGI element, is excellent, beautiful, detailed, stunning work from the team at Weta. The bugs are incredible. The, just the, the recreation of New York. John said it took like 14 months, 15 months to recreate the Empire State Building. It's... Weta is one of the best CGI houses on the planet, if not the best. It's wonderful. And to see how Circus was able to work in conjunction with the CGI team, it's honestly miraculous that this holds up. It's miraculous that it even worked in the first place, but it just goes to show you the talent of the team at Weta. I mean, not that every moment is perfect. You still see people being keyed into scenes. It's... It's still from 2005. Yeah, it's top tier 2005. My favorite scene of sequence has to be Kong versus the three T-Rexes. Starting from the moment we see those little uh, stumpy, lumpy quadruped dinosaurs. They like waddle along in their tiny short legs, and I love that. The ultimate fight between Kong and the T-Rexes is just wonderful. The way that... He's using every single one of his limbs as, like, a fist to punch with is incredible. And that final money shot of the ripping the jaws of the T-Rex open is just an incredible sequence. And the sequence I imagine that they built the game around. Because <laughs> who doesn't want to play a giant ape beating the hell out of dinosaurs? I mean, come on. It's just great. A great sequence. And I gotta give a little credit to the scene on the boat where Adrian Brody and Naomi Watts are just staring at each other, just looking at each other. She's like doing the scene, looking over the into the sunrise off of the front of the ship. Yeah, it's just like a really beautiful moment of connection between these two performers. And they handle it spectacularly. I have to give John Lithgow the role of Denim. Mainly because I want to see him get more and more frantic and more and more crazy. The Lunkies on the island. And they give him a lot to do. You can imagine Lithgow as this not-all-there guy who's just desperate to get this done. And, I don't know, he gets a lot of chance to do some badass things. But also, you get to see the range he's capable of with what he goes through on the island. Going Colonel Kurtz, you know? Finding his heart of darkness. There was a lot of reporting prior to this movie coming out that all of the Lord of the Rings cast basically were saying that they wanted to be in King Kong, including Ian McKellen. And obviously Andy Serkis is the only one that came over. But my pitch to you is, how good would like Ian McKellen as Denim have been? Wonderful. Give him the opportunity to do his sort of... You know, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing style <laughs> yeah. B-horror movie performance. That would have been great. Yeah. For me, my MVP is Andy Serkis. He gives so much life to Kong. The little facial movements that they did. Really, the MVP is Andy Serkis and Weta combined. Because neither of them could have done it without each other. 
they work so beautifully together. Every little thing that Circus is doing with his face and with his movements is captured by Weta and is brought to life so brilliantly. For my favorite scene or sequence, it's the bug pit. Because it is the moment when Peter Jackson is getting back to his horror roots. This movie has a lot of it there, but it is the most atmospheric and most terrifying moment. Because I was I was cringing the whole time, like, get these bugs away from me, Christ. But yeah, it's an exceptionally done scene. I also want to give shout out to the way that the lighting is in the scene where Kong first shows up to take Anne. With the fire on the wall and everything, that looked incredible. Now, I want to do something interesting with my John Lithgow one. I want to replace King Kong with John Lithgow. A John Lithgow of that size in a suit. <laughs> can he talk or is he mute? No, he does the monkey noises. I can picture it. Look. And it feels wrong. I'm just picturing like a $207 million blockbuster with a giant look John Lithgow. Yeah. You can't tell me you don't want to see that, though. Of course I want to see it, but it's changing <laughs> King Kong so dramatically. <laughs> Nothing in the plot has to change. King Lithgow. It's King John. To be fair, <laughs> it's a huge departure from the original, but hear us out, Universal. No one else is doing this. <laughs> I can guarantee you that. You're going to corner the market oh on 50-foot John Lithgow's, but... In all honesty, probably... Oh, God, now I'm just imagining John Lithgow standing on the top of the Empire State Building swatting at planes. Yeah. (laughs) I have made this year worth it in just saying that. But, no, denim. Because, like, you get the wildness. I love Jack Black here. He is incredible here. The place he went to is a place I don't think he's been to in his career again. But, yeah, this character would absolutely be brilliant with Lithgow. I would want... Maybe young him as Driscoll could also work. Old him as Driscoll would work. John Lithgow is just excellent. Let's now take it to a vote. Are we or are we not a pro-Peter Jackson's King Kong podcast? Lawson, this will be a conflicting one for you, I'm assuming. Uh, So why don't we start with you? Not really, actually. I, I am solidly pro this movie. I I did have, you know, a, a milder love of it this time than I remembered having. And again, I, I can't help but think that that was due to my watching the extended cut, which really just makes an, an already too long movie even longer. But I really enjoy this take on the material. I think it's epic and... It's romantic. Yeah, in, in, in all senses of the word. Not only, you know, romantic love romantic but romantic in sort of the genre of romanticism kind of you know it has that sort of epic myth classic adventure story joseph campbell kind of of movement to it but it's it's just done so well the character of kong is so good and you know even even with as much as i love kong skull island i think that this has still got to be my favorite king kong movie so uh so yeah i am pro this movie uh for me I can't say I'm pro King Kong. I do enjoy it a lot, and there's a lot here to love. It's just a bit long, and the the stuff with the native people on the island does irk me the wrong way. They should have had it be those like the those Dutch families. 
I just think there was a lack of forethought when doing that, and you gotta, sure. you gotta think about that. You just have to, because even in two thousand and five, you were playing in dicey territory for that. Yeah, that sort of stuff was always wrong, even when it was that sort of thing was being portrayed in the original film all all those years back. You gotta know it was gonna age poorly. So, John, what about you? So. I'm gonna say pro with the caveat of the things that Harley mentioned. It it is too long, but it doesn't feel like anything necessarily is unnecessary in it. You know, it's long on purpose. And while I have my severe misgivings about the depiction of the native people of Skull Island and how primal and you know, brutal they are portrayed. All in all, just as a complete package, the movie does so much right that I'm pro this movie with an asterisk next to it. There you have it, everyone. We are not a pro King Kong podcast, but we're also not an anti King Kong podcast. Aww. So now we're going to go into our segment where we talk about films that we have previously covered as deep dives on the podcast before we had started up our pro-anti-ambivalent segment. So what movies are we covering this week? So let's just go through them one by one. Wet Hot American Summer, I am saying pro. Pro. Eh, middle of the road. I wasn't as hot on it as you guys were. I am pro, if only for the scene where they do crack. Donnie Darko, I am pro. Pro. Easily. Pro. Easy. Harry Potter, years one to three. I am pro with the asterisks that I would not be pro the first two movies, but Azkaban being in there pushes it over the edge. I'm pro because of all of the movies. Pro for the films, yeah. Books are a little bit eh for me. Harry Potter years four and five, I'm pro. 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 And Harry Potter years six and seven, I am pro. 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 Well, there you go. Now, as for what we will be talking about next week, we will be discussing a local movie for the first time. You know, the first time of, of us doing an Australian film. We mm. will be talking about the horror film Wolf Creek 2. Not the first Wolf Creek, but the sequel. We've decided that there is more to talk about in the sequel, even though I, I suspect a lot of people haven't seen it, even if they have seen the first one. But if, if you uh, are on the fence about it, you definitely should watch it because it's got some really cool ideas it's available for streaming in Australia on Stan. It is also available for purchase or rental on the Apple, Amazon, YouTube, and Fetch stores. And it is additionally available for rental on something called the Ozflix store. Okay. Bizarre. Right. Never heard of that one before. Neither have I, but it just appears to be a large amount of Australian films. Short films, TV shows, series. You can watch Muriel's Wedding and Kenny. <laughs> If you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Extra to the Candy Counter, you can join myself and on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. Have you seen King Kong? What versions of this movie have you seen? Have you seen the extended? Have you seen the theatrical? Have you seen any of the other adaptations of King Kong? What do you think about Boss Monkey? That's what we call King Kong. You can also comment, rate, like, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind that when you're commenting on the vast majority of podcast apps, it's for the show on the whole, with specific, you know, platforms like Podbean, it's episode-specific comments. So just, 
Your mileage may vary depending on what one you listen through. But please do like, comment, and subscribe. Hi all, back for another broadcast from the future. I have Lawson's answer that he received. He has been granted his transfer. Yes. He's not particularly happy about where he's ended up. Ah. <laughs> he has ended up being transferred to a recently established diorama depicting the Guinness World Record for most people modeling on a catwalk. This was accomplished on the 4th of July 2015 in the United Kingdom, Liverpool specifically, where 3,651 people achieved this accomplishment by walking on a catwalk, both, you know, actual models and civilians alike. See, the joke's on you because I can shake it, baby. <laughs> what happens with celebrities? Do celebrities be put in dioramas of themselves? Yeah, it's it's more simple that way. Fair enough. I've been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue to be Jean Lewis. <laughs> <laughs>